0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations.
1: We, we, we. we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. the fifth column.
0: Column. column. Greetings, and welcome back to the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly, and sometimes much more frequently than weekly, rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do consequential things that help to keep the country moving, that keep us on the right track at a place called Freethink, and I'm delighted to be joining you today. Uh, this, is, this is very exciting. Matt Welch is in the building, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan is also in the building, does something at Vice News, whatever it is. And we do have a guest. They call her the Beyonce of journalism. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Been, been waiting for I'm kidding. This. <laughs> Smile, show us that grill. <laughs> it's Jacob Siegel. Jacob yeah. Siegel, who is currently, you're at Tablet Mag. You're a contributor, a senior writer. senior writer. writer,
2: Senior writer at Tabla Magazine. For a second, I thought people were calling me the Beyonce of
0: journalism. Uh, We could start tonight. We could start that trend. Just wait until this ends. I think you you have a better claim to it than the self-proclaimed Beyonce of journalism. I think she's
3: the Lisa Left Eye Lopez of journalism.
2: (laughs) I was the real talent in TLC, though, right? Lisa Left Eye was...
3: She was so good at burning down football players' houses. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Andre Risen. Andre that? Risen. Andre yeah, Risen. He's a, a, a good receiver. Yeah, yeah.
3: it's great. He yeah. just had a poor choice in members of TLC. She yeah, wasn't the best one was uh, Chili. Chili. Uh, chili. T-Bos. Oh, yeah. T boz was the best Dude, one. Dude, no, 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 no. T Baz no. will hurt you. T boz will hurt you. She'll break your nose. Yeah.
0: Chili, Maybe. But chili. She, was she was the most attractive. Chili. You take her no, home.
3: Chili was the most chili?
2: chili was beautiful, but T boz was, oh was fine. Yeah.
3: I can hear the sound of radios across America clicking off right now.
2: <laughs> Listen, don't go chasing waterfalls. Yeah. I, well, by <laughs> the right, way, I just want to point
3: <laughs> out that um we're gonna sometime figure out the video aspect of this has been talking about this not today not Not, not not today not today not today satan no i mean literally all of us look like like a hobo jug band matt (laughs) you get like what the like are you like screaming stevie stevens with that uh, wax on wax off man unbelievable uh, I'm, i'm
1: bringing i'm bringing like a 1980 No, 1991, Axel back. Yeah, that's like like you're
3: the shittiest member of GNR right now. He's already like
1: receding the hairline here and kind of fattening up. That's that's. You look like like
3: Steven Adler today. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know who these
1: people are. He's the drug addicted, the first drummer who grew up. uh, Who grew up uh, three blocks from me? Oh, is that
3: right? I think every member of every metal band was from Long Beach. Uh, (laughs) His uh,
1: his brother Billy Adler and I played on the uh, on the Reds. In, uh, in the uh, Lakewood wow. Village Little League. Billy Adler. Billy the more,
0: Adler. Th- by the way, probably the more successful of the two. While we're doing our, um, our pre-game, I guess this isn't pre-game. This is no. just the bullpen This, is, the, this is it, man. I don't know what yeah. to call it. <laughs> Anyways, um, Jacob Siegel, Tablet, is here. Jacob is a senior writer at Tablet, and he is here because he is a dear friend, very bright, and he wrote a balls-out yeah. Brilliant Jeez, mur- murder, mayhem, destruction piece earlier this week, and I desperately want to talk to him about it. We're also going to talk about Matt Welch's uh, brilliant piece from yesterday as well. Um, I think it was yesterday that got published, right? That <sighs> dropped yesterday?
1: I Yeah, whatever it was, it was just like uh, surfing in Jacob's wake and taking on <laughs> his – it's just true. sloppy thirds and not crediting him. So yeah. and, and, I, and
3: I want to in, include myself in this. I wrote a letter to the, to the city government contesting a ticket this week. <laughs> so did I. I don't write anymore and uh, um. I just don't do anything anymore. I'm just
0: uh, sidelined. What, what, and, were you, what were you contesting a ticket for? Um, well, because side when, my car,
3: when my car got towed, <laughs> I had to look up the plate number and I was like, what the fuck? I got a ticket from one of those dumb cameras, which I'm going to, there was a British guy who went around like smashing them. And of course they're cameras. So he got caught doing it. <laughs> um, didn't, he didn't think that thing through. And uh, I was like, fucking cameras. I've got, look, I'm going to climb it and fucking break it. And I, um, <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing. But the great thing about the New York city government is that they're so in, uh, unbelievably incompetent that, um, I went to the website to look at the photo. Cause it's like a photo of your car. Right. And the photo was missing. And it's not. And so now I can contest it and say, you guys are incompetent. But I was using an app called Don't Pay. Do you know yeah. this? Do you I know about this? I've heard of so it. So someone yeah. mentioned it when they were trying to cancel their New York Times subscription, because the Times yeah. makes you like walk to like the Times building and like submit a letter. And you have to have like a you have to talk to Nicole Hannah Jones about your whiteness. And then, <laughs> then they'll cancel <laughs> it for you. And so I saw that. And so I, I logged on and I was like, oh, what I did to cancel my Times subscription wasn't ideological. I was just I just, it went up in price. So I canceled is I just didn't renew the card. Cause my card had expired. And mm-hmm. that was the only way I could get them to stop, stop my subscription. But in that app, it's That's, like a robo lawyer too.
0: And if you've heard of these things. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm looking, like, I'm looking back. Cause I know yeah, what you can you're It can about.
3: auto contest tickets for you. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen.
2: You know what Jonathan Lethem, the great novelist Jonathan Lethem said about of
3: motherless Brooklyn,
2: mother's Brooklyn fortress of solitude. Yeah. He said, Driving in New York betrays a a fundamental misapprehension about what it means to live in the city. Now I'm going to butcher the quote. Here I am trying to appear smart.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jonathan Latham said that before COVID every weekend, I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. So all three of the people you're looking at right now, uh, Jake Siegel, have purchased cars. COVID cars
2: in the past three. By the three way, Siegel has been, been, been living in California for like two and a half decades. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they no, all I know, do. I
3: know. I know. Big, right, exactly. <laughs> Everyone not
1: named Siegel will end up in California. That's just just the way the the way of the. Uh, I've of been the land. told.
3: One thing that we should do. Um, because I think I mentioned to you guys, it's like we don't do the thing that like a real podcast does, despite the fact that we have lots of listeners. and everything. We don't do the thing where like, we advertise the stuff that we do. And everyone says to me, like, why don't you guys ever mention the Patreon? And I remember at the beginning when we first started it, we were excited. I mentioned it jokingly a bunch in one episode. And some guy wrote in, was like, would you stop talking about it? <laughs> do you remember this? And he was like, why are you talking about the so Patreon obviously so obviously what we should do is have
1: and- Jacob Siegel, because he's got the best voice. Yeah, we should to, oh, we should to, have... To encourage- oh. Do it. Do a, a twenty-second radio spot, Jacob Siegel, in a world uh, telling people to subscribe to the uh, to yes. the Fifth Column Patreon.
2: <laughs> if you are a person who likes to listen to smart people talk about things, sometimes intelligently, but sometimes it's nice to listen to smart people talk about things unintelligently, and this show does both. <laughs> and sometimes it's smart people talking over each other, across each other. I mean. Uh, But listen, there is not a better non-manifesto related podcast. (laughs) (laughs) In all honesty, this is the podcast my entire extended family listens to now. My brother-in-law, my Israeli mother-in-law listens to your podcast.
0: Oh, my God. Um,
2: I'm not joking. That's correct. So it's a (laughs) phenomenal podcast. You should definitely pay for their Patreon. I'm sure you could find it online. It's
3: true. Yeah, we get you get know, so much extra stuff that we just recorded for you. And another thing is that I actually want to promote something that um there is a fifth column subreddit. Yes. Uh that I think is We the Fifth. And um I've been over a few times and I sent you guys something from it today, mm-hmm. um, because I just started looking at it. And we should get more people over there because it's a it's a cool little community, but it's I think it's just I don't know if it's just started or something. But and also, we're going to use it. So it that
1: Jacob Siegel uh, plug and just going to drop oh, it in yeah. every single yeah. uh, episode <laughs> we've ever can done we, and that we ever will do. Can
2: I tell you
3: something? Can we cut out the bit where you said it kind of sucks? No, 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 it? no, no, I, no, no I we'll edit.
1: I
2: said, I
3: said that. will be like,
1: I
2: enjoy all of it. I enjoy the parts where there's the talk. I like the messiness of it is attractive.
0: Yeah,
3: <laughs> you need to get we need to get Fred Siegel uh, listening because your father is a genius and and I love. His I couldn't stuff. agree with you more. If and, you could get uh, my
2: father to listen to anything other than WFAN, um, my father <laughs> <laughs> really sports talk radio is what my father. Yeah, so if you could, is that right? Sports, yeah, 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 my father. Wow. Yeah. He, he listens pretty much exclusively, radio-wise, pretty much exclusively to sports talk radio. But I was going to say that you guys have the most dedicated, hardcore listeners I have ever encountered. It's wild um, how plugged in and very smart. And I, I say that sincerely. Really I've, smart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Formed,
2: you know, internet connections with people who uh, are sharp and engaging. Who I, from being on mm. three years ago, who I continue to interact with,
3: it's sometimes horrible how smart
0: they are. No sensual encounters,
2: no, no sexual encounters. But, uh, the oh, VR, sens-
0: sensual, you monster, sensual. Come on, no,
2: no, no I, I haven't had oh, any sexual okay. encounters, but I'm a brute, so I'm sensual. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know. <laughs> From the Daily Brute, um, yeah. Our listeners are sometimes like um, annoyingly smart, yeah, and because uh, they don't let you get away with anything, it's which is true. both good and makes me
0: feel bad about myself sometimes. It's true. Before we got fig- figured out Matt's thing and worked through the delay, I was on the phone with a listener who sent us an email. In fact, he sent a pair of emails. The title of one of these emails is "Camille is wrong on this one." Period. And oh, that's why you're on his- the phone. His phone number was in the <laughs> signature, so I just called that motherfucker. I just called him. <laughs> Are you
1: serious? Yeah, I just called him. You just called I just like called a him. random guy. Yeah, he, I just called he, him. And what it like ten one? minutes of our valuable time while yeah. I was like trying to figure out my audio. Well, I, like, I asked for him
0: by name. I asked for him by name. He's like, uh, "Who is this? Is it Camille? It's Camille Foster?" And I won't say his name because I don't. I don't know that he wants me to. That's out who
2: you him. were talking to at the beginning of this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are You kidding me? I was. I was giving him the business right. It sounded really oh, smart. Giving him the
2: business. I was. <laughs> that's a random oh, listener who you just decided to call. You got to be. Whoa, 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 whoa!
0: None of our listeners are None of our listeners are random. He's uh, a patron of the podcast, and right. his email is actually really smart. And if you send us an email, and your phone number is in said email, I might just call you. I might just call you, and I might just tell you what's si. yes, up, because I
3: don't, be I don't play games.
0: I don't play games. Don't send me an email talking about Camille wrong. I ain't never been wrong yet, not one time. You know what it's like? It's like that. It's like that service cameo where you can <laughs> um, pay people.
3: You just send an email to Camille, and he just calls you yeah. and like berates yeah. you. You do have to pay and for like fifteen. So now seconds. what's going to happen is going to a you can, then, bunch of emails Gorka
0: will call from you. people who don't even <laughs> disagree with me. You know, Sebastian Gorka retweeted me the other day, which is weird. Oh no! Oh, he can't retweet me because he blocked me. Well, you deserve so. yeah, it. I
1: blocked all of us.
0: You blocked two years ago. Yeah. Nicole Hannah-Jones blocked me. Just yeah. Recently. Nicole Hannah-Jones. That was recently, right? Well, after she was tweeting about the Great Fireworks conspiracy, but I, I retweeted and tweeted at her. Well, I don't even know if I mentioned her, but in either case, I tweeted about the shit because it was wrong and she would later apologize. But apparently she meant it so much that she blocked me for calling attention to her egregious journalistic war crime. <laughs> wow. she's the yeah, she's the rotco mulatto <laughs> of, of of
3: weird fireworks conspiracies it's like you know if you're gonna come with a conspiracy theory, there's like smart conspiracies that are really really wrong and totally crazy yeah. but they're like kind of <laughs> smart in their way you're like oh that's i get where you're going but it's totally bananas that one was just dumb it was just like a dumb and maybe
0: a little bit of context like every single summer around july 4th brooklyn is on fire at night like you can hear fireworks going off all over the place. I first discovered it when we moved to Bed Stuy years ago, and I'm pretty confident I talked about it on the podcast. And trying to differentiate between actual firecrackers and gunshots was a challenge for me. Um, and, <laughs> and apparently now it's much worse, and there are lots and lots of fireworks going off, big fireworks in some cases. Yeah. And this isn't only in Brooklyn; it's happening all over the place. But Nicole Hannah Jones retweeted someone I believe his name was like son of Baldwin was what he was calling himself. He's some sort of writer. Mm. We talked about this on the, on the, on the Patreon. And uh, I believe her tweet just said, <laughs> third cousin read, of Baldwin. read this or look at this. My, I think it might've been read this, read this. no context provided other than that. And she is linking to someone who is laying out a rather extensive conspiracy theory about how the government Is somehow using fireworks, which they are providing to young black men throughout the city, to disrupt black and
1: brown people's
0: sleep so that they are less able to sustain the campaign for justice.
1: And also desensitize them to the oncoming. uh, Oh, that's right.
0: Yes.
2: To an oncoming artillery bombard. Yeah, so they wouldn't. <laughs> so they they wouldn't, wouldn't be, be able an to. Artillery
0: boom and, the, <laughs> and the actual quote there is so that they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between artillery and firecrackers. Sure. Which, of course, yeah. When a when a piece of artillery hits you in the sternum, I think you know the difference. Yeah, the burning building would be the first
3: difference. Is that the entire block has been hit with a mortar round is like, wait, is that the
0: fireworks?
2: Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> I've heard both disabused. artillery rounds going off fireworks. <laughs> you can't mistake them.
0: Let me yeah. tell you, there's no... <laughs> it, needless to say, this is not true. It is completely fabricated. It's ridiculous. And lots of people pointed it out, not just me. And in the throes of that... Um, she deactivated her account and then reactivated it and somewhere along the line decided that I was not um, not worth allowing to see her tweets anymore, which obviously that means there no one will call out any of her mistakes ever again. And uh, she can proceed to make the case for reparations, specifically the case for writing her a check for $100,000 because why not?
1: She did apologize uh, for that tweet uh, she later did, on. in a half-hearted way. In a half-hearted way. And then – and then suggesting uh,
0: suggesting she suggested that she just wanted people to take a look at it
1: and which just asking questions.
0: Yeah, which actually does not truck with the fact that she was actually she had subsequent posts talking about how unusual this was and how she's never seen it like this before. How these were professional grade fireworks that's not apologizing. That is my favorite bit. Is she, like,
3: she knows. She knows the Look, grades. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, "Oh, that's professional." I, I say, that stuff
2: is ridiculous. <laughs> this past, it's really stopped. Actually, in the last three days, but the two weeks prior, yeah. I've lived in Brooklyn for just about forty years now. This is unlike anything I'd ever heard before. But one of the things I realized when I calmed down a bit was part of the reason why is because the the stillness of the city right now is so yep. unnatural and. Sure. That hadn't, I think, fully registered for a lot of people. There's no competing ambient noise, or it's so minimal compared to what it had been in the past, that even if the volume of fireworks is higher, the munitions are a higher grade, even if all of that's true, it's also that they're occurring against the background of near silence compared to what New York has been like in years past. And it made it feel different. I, I felt it was different. I didn't jump to this is a government psyop to target black <laughs> artillery bombardments. But I, I did think it felt different, you know?
0: Yeah.
3: There's, well, the other thing that I noticed is that, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of July 4th stuff has been canceled because of COVID. And I imagine there's a lot of um, fireworks on the market. And a lot more fireworks on the market than they would have been previously. Hmm. And I'm sure that those are discounted in some ways. This Do you think This so? has been,
1: this has been uh, actually exhaustively reported by now. Um, oh, Slate has. had a pretty good piece on it. And you know who had the best piece on really? it so far? The New, the New York Times. The New York Times today had a yeah. 3 bylined story. Yeah. About how the conspiracies that you might have heard about (laughs) regarding... From our own journalists. Well, they left left out from our own journalists. How is that possible? Well, as Jacob Siegel will, will readily tell you... And Moynihan, too, like the New York Times is notorious and has been notorious for the last 25 years of never providing hyperlinks to stories. They'll say like, an Internet site reported that and then they'll like steal the story and then like re-report it. Um, so <laughs> the, there is that tradition that the Times has. They're much better about that now. They weren't mm. better about that in this story. So they talked about uh, they talked about the conspiracy theory. They actually linked to Son of Baldwin. Oh, my um, God. Not really. Oh, they they did to
0: it and they didn't yeah. mention that she is the one who was amplifying this?
1: Nope. They did not mention this. This, this is, is incredible. incredible. How is
0: this possible? <laughs> Ser- serious, is there anything more egregious? Like, is there anyone Probably. working in journalism who is worse, <laughs> who has more accolades and, and has a more prominent perch than this human being? Like today, I saw a, an Instagram post from the Times endorsing her reparations program and quoting her in particular it, during a week where she should be so embarrassed that she won't show her face, that HR should be talking to her about, like, hey, this isn't going to work, that the New York Times slack should be on fire with her colleagues saying, hey, this is crazy. You can't do shit like that. You're supposed to be a professional.
3: Well, they got to figure out they got they got to figure out the Barry situation before they get to her. They have to
0: the, the Slack has to figure out how to fire her. I imagine that these monsters are mostly still worried about Barry Weiss. That's crazy. A right, right.
2: monster Barry Weiss. Let us all maintain all right. our priorities.
0: <laughs> is she is she promoting conspiracy theories on the internet? Because I don't I don't think. I mean, so. if she, I, I, I
3: suspect the reaction would be rather different if if she was. I mean, I think one of the. The things is is um, I saw a common response to this was like, OK, maybe it's a little over the top. But you do realize that the government was selling crack. On the- <laughs> they actually weren't. So I know where you're going with this, Gary Webb. But they, uh, I know, I'm glad you saw the movie with uh, whoever was in it. Who was in there? was a recent one, I don't know, it was like Tony katane or something, but is it Christian remember, Bale? who was in the movie that Gary and, <laughs> I think it might have been Christian Bale. Yeah. And uh they're like, well, they did that. And it's like, oh my God, all these things is that the great thing about histories of the CIA is you get these two, two kind of polls. like the CIA tried to kill Castro so many times, right? And then you hear the list of how you know cack-handed they were every time. And then the next breath, it's like you have no idea what goes on behind the curtain. And it's mostly just really incompetent people. The people of the CIA will tell you um, that when we think of things like 9-11 and all the failures of the intelligence community, think about about WMDs. I mean, the the intelligence community is not as intelligent as you might think it is. And they're not, you know, even if they were to bother themselves with such a bizarre, elaborate thing, could you imagine that meeting? Like, guys, okay, I have an idea. No, 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 hear me out. This is going to sound weird. But Let's get fireworks. It's going to screw them up, and like they're not going to sleep. And it, like, what are you talking about? Who on earth thinks about this for more than two seconds and doesn't come to the conclusion that they have been, you know, drinking a little too much or they have some neurons? The in mildness firework? of
2: the response, is that- though, is not incidentally related to the absurdity of the statement or or the the you know the obscene irresponsibility of the statement. Before I get to that, I should say. I've never been more sympathetic to Daniel Patrick Moynihan's uh, ban the CIA efforts than I've become over the, the past yeah. years of dismantling the CIA, however you want to construct it. And
3: I think I've recommended the book Secrecy yes. more than any yeah. other book on this yeah. podcast. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 It's a great, great read. But to
2: come back to the times for a second, like, you know, if you compare the vitriolic responses to Barry Weiss to the mild, muted, sort of sympathetic responses to Nicole Hannah-Jones from people who we can sort of broadly call the, uh, not just New York Times staffers, but let's say kind of, you know, elite media people. There's, that's not incidental. It's not incidental that the wildly over the top, irresponsible conspiracy theorizing of Jones uh, gets very, very little pushback and the mildest statements by Weiss get this totally outsized Hmm. uh, sort of disciplinary, collective disciplinary response. I I think that that's indicative of or or illustrative of something um, Hmm. that's part of the kind of social ecosystem of the media right now.
0: Do you think when it might I, be illustrative of a civil war inside of the New York Times where there are the wokes <laughs> and the oldsters who some of those oldsters are more sort of classically liberal? The way you Do could you think that, that might?
2: Yeah. The way you could tell that there's no civil response was the organized denunciation of the person. <laughs> <laughs> there might be uh, a civil war. That's how you know it's not real. Hmm. It's when, uh, yeah. A hundred people immediately line up to recite the same <laughs> script. one yeah. after the-,
0: the distribution of ice cream on this corner is going to get black New York Times reporters killed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start.
0: It's fine. Have we, have <laughs> we, have we, have
2: we
3: seen have anybody, anybody die from the Tom Cotton editorial? Have we, have we got an how update on that? how that many, many people have died from that editorial? I think it's 500. 500.
2: 500. Had died because you might have noticed that, like, reporting on murders that have occurred in America <laughs> over the past. Uh, however many weeks, it's been a, a bit absent from the national news. So you might not know if that had happened.
1: Can I ask uh, Jacob a, a factual question about this? Because anybody named Siegel is a knows everything about New York uh, crime stories by definition. Um <laughs> I see across, you know, my wife is a very strong New York Post reader, to say the least. Um, uh, But you see a lot of things like, oh, my God, the murders are happening a lot more in New York right now uh, than like it's it's crazy. Actually, the spike. Can you contextualize? Is there some noticeable thing about crime in New York recently?
2: Yeah, there is a noticeable thing. I I am not the New York expert that either my father or my brother Harry okay. Siegel. Sorry to typecast you. That's okay. um I, I think I might lend myself to the typecasting in certain ways, but I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I'm not nearly as smart or as sort of dug in on city politics as they are. But yeah, I mean, look, there were I think it was uh, 13 shootings in 12 hours the other week. Uh, wow. Nicole Galinas has a piece in the Post today. The, the so violent crime is up, uh, I think, fairly significantly, but the the thing that sort of argument people will make in response to that is that it had been at such a low ebb that, um, uh, you know, some uptick is not cause for immediate alarm. Something like that might be the response, but, um, I don't, I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself and how I characterize this because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, um, you know, there's absolutely been an increase. I just, if you give me a minute, I'll look it up and pretend like I know. No, it's it's, it's no, unnecessary. No. Uh,
1: but like uh, the uh, a thing uh, that strikes me is interesting, and, and you've written as we mentioned at the top, uh, one of the best essays that we've seen um, in this last crazy month of American kind of political and media discourse, and not just one. You actually wrote you've written quite a few. It's kind of it's true. Just maybe just write one and like relax for a little bit. Like, yeah, last stop being so nervous. good at this.
0: Stop that and.
3: That was one of those things that you read and you are mad that you didn't. Know that. Um, it's
1: true. Or, or like you try to write it yourself two days later, pretend like the first one did. <laughs> yeah, exist. it's not gonna happen. Yeah, uh, it doesn't work out. Yeah. But Jake Siegel covered. But him. like, what I'm struck by, it, even when we're we're talking about this, is that there there is what seems like a lack of self awareness among. People with whom we are arguing in this case uh, for me in my in what I wrote was about uh, Wesley Lowry's piece in The Times that talked about kind of uh, trading or, or like updating the uh, idea about journalistic objectivity, which I think he's straw manned, but whatever, and, and re- re- replacing that with moral clarity or a sense of moral clarity. And it's not just him. It's a bunch of other people who've written about that, but like uh, in the way that they talk about. Either that particular issue, or their particular issues, or the Tom Cotton op-ed, or whatever it is that we're all arguing about right now, there's this almost a, like a willful, or just an odd to me, like um, uh, unwillingness to uh, to grapple with something like okay, so you know, in the case of Nic- Nicole Hannah Jones and the and the sixteen nineteen project, which is an interesting project, um, but it like was. One of the planks of it, one of the essays, one of the lines of argument was riddled with criticism from the beginning by people who had standing and who had pretty good arguments that were only addressed six months later. Like there are factual, basic factual things that are kind of ignored um, uh, by people in the course of making their arguments, like in 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 the Tom Cotton op-ed, which doesn't need to be. Picked apart any more than, than it does, but there's this whole like high dudgeon of my God, he didn't meet our standards. And like, you don't have to be from like Reed Irvine's like media outfit or the Media Research Center or whatever. You don't have to be the Federalist. Uh, or you don't have to be Molly Hemingway to say, you know what, there might be a double standard in the way that you're applying your standard. And it would it would strike me that people who are making provocative new arguments in these places might engage any of that. And there's like none of that. So as someone who's just written about that, what what do you make of that? Or maybe you disagree with my my contention oh, that people I, are not even engaging with the apparent, obvious, glaring double standard in front of their face.
2: No, I think that's exactly right. Um, look, I, there are two possibilities. One is that there's a kind of mass delusion um, and then the other is that there's a sort of mass disingenuousness. So, for instance, with the Tom Cotton op ed, the idea that the problem with the Cotton op ed was that it didn't meet certain standards strikes me as likely a highly disingenuous response. Um, uh, now, I am not a mind reader. And so, charitably, I'll say perhaps it wasn't disingenuous and it was diluted, But um, <laughs> the, the delusion would be the charitable response across American society right now across the various institutions of the country and over the past several months really starting I think you could see it most dramatically starting with covid which sort of you know pulled back the the tide came back and you could sort of see the, the shoreline revealed the shape of things revealed the degree to which there's a kind of you know, epistemic crisis is the phrase that gets used a lot. The degree to which there's a a total breakdown in the infrastructural ability to manage a shared truth has never been more pronounced than it is right now. And I, I think that it is a matter of infrastructure to some extent. But what has ended up happening is that the divergence between common sense on a number of issues between facticity between you know basic sort of empirical or observable realities and the kind of official narratives that get produced by the organs of higher media in particular the New York Times chief among them it's widened and widened and widened and the what sits in that gap is in unbelievably volatile degree of untruth i don't think people fully appreciate just how volatile it is it's like pumping a room full of a highly flammable gas you know mm. and it's not it's invisible right so you can do it people are still in the room you can keep pumping the gas in but the you've made the whole thing a a, a tinderbox it could go up at any second and the more that this has happened, um, the more it becomes not only difficult to say the true thing, it becomes risky to say the true thing. Because now you have all of these people, um, you have all of these people, let's take the cotton op-ed for a second, right? Did the cotton, did the cotton op-ed put Black time st- staffers' lives in danger? Uh, not only is it absurd, there's a recognition that it's absurd now in the way that you could see after the fact, there are a number of this sort of like reasonable liberals who launder this, this kind of stuff, uh, are now saying, well, actually this was the council of the union who was saying you, you had to phrase it this way for, uh, sort of labor protection. Oh, okay. So it was ridiculous then, right? You're saying, <laughs> you say we had to use that, that language, um, only to cover our ass. Oh, oh okay, okay. Right. I got it. So it's absurd. So nobody's life was in danger. Like we all knew all along.
1: And oh. just to be clear, there's journalists using words in a way that they didn't precisely mean. Yes. Okay. Hey. Go, on. go can, on. Can I, can really we drill down on, yeah,
0: sure. Yeah. Well, I want to drill down on something that you're, the claim that you're making here about the, the proliferation of untruth and the degree to which this is unprecedented. Can we can we specify that? Cuz I I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there is there more untruth in American society than there was, you know, several several uh 150 years ago? Yes. Is 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 it <laughs> the case that amongst the average American <laughs> that they believe more things that are sort of provably false? That there's more conspiracy theories that are proliferating in the ether today than back then, or are we saying something specific about the media and about the quality of those publications? And is that fundamentally a function of something that's kind of wrong, or is it just a matter of kind of the pace and the process of reporting and journalisming, or is, is there something deeper? Cause I get the sense that you're saying there's something deeper, but I, I want to drill down both, on that.
2: I think that there is a material basis to the deeper epistemic, crisis. So I look, I don't, is there more in an absolute sense than there was, let's say 200 years ago, there's vastly exponentially more information, right? So perhaps there's more truth and more untruth, but I want to make a distinction between untruth and ignorance, right? I I would Mm. expect that somebody 200 years ago was far more ignorant than somebody today, but they didn't presume to know everything. They didn't they didn't they didn't feel uh, they didn't feel that they understood things happening on the other side of the country in a way that had to be fit in an in an integral system of ideology and politics. Mm. I don't think that there was that expectation. Moreover, the technology of disseminating the information was in incomparably less powerful. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the the Look, the, if you take the the Lowry op-ed, for instance, I think that it very succinctly and sort of powerfully embodies what I, I think is one of the animating uh, mistakes that journalists make. Journalists make, and and Matt in his piece for Reason, um, you know, lays this out in more detail than I'm about to. But I'll give you perhaps a slightly different spin on it, and that is that people at the, particularly at the higher end of journalism have gotten very deeply invested in what Lowry, uh, he frames as a prioritization of truth over a kind of uh, pretense of objectivity, right? And the, the specific instances that are brought up of how one is supposed to get the truth across to the public what they all amount to is telling people what things mean, right? Mm. So when they're talking about the truth, it's almost never in reference to revealing events that occur in the world such that people can see things that had previously been hidden or occluded or had not been transparent, right? That's Mm -hmm. not the sort of truth they're talking about. They're not talking about a truth that's out in the world that they're going to reveal. They're talking about a truth, that they're in possession of, like a priestly mm-hmm. class, right? Yes. That truth is that they are going to take the events that you already see, that you're already aware of, and they're going to tell you truly what they mean. Right. Truly this police shooting was not a or uh, this police shooting, they're not gonna render it in the passive voice, which by the way, like newspapers are guilty of doing too much of that sort of passive voice. I totally agree with that. So that's a reason but that's a procedural critique, right? Somebody like Lowry is taking it farther. And he's saying Mm -hmm. that there is a truth. And what ends up happening is that journalism has gotten deeply invested in this idea of its own power, and it it believes in its power as shaping the truth, which is why—and uh, and by shaping the truth, it will control events— And so you see all these journalists after 2016 whose response to the victory of Donald Trump was not, oh, hey, we had fundamentally misunderstood the country, not we had misunderstood the apparatus of democracy in these particular places. It was, no, no, we didn't write enough op-eds explaining how demonic Trump is. It -hmm. it was the the exact (laughs) wrong lesson to draw. Right. So journalists recognize they have this power this power over symbols this power over discourse but they mistake the nature of that power and it that's volatile and and that that claim to the truth i think you could call it ironically or paradoxically that investment in the capital t truth ends mm-hmm. up producing more untruth because rather than cultivating a curiosity in the observable world this sort of dedicated approach to like, hey, let's explain the systems and people's lives as they work. It it, it suggests that it's a a moral proposition that uh, I've gone on for a while, but I I hope that This is
0: is good. uh, You're flowing.
1: You're flowing. I I don't want him to stop talking at all and not just because of the sound of his voice, but I think it leads inexorably to what we've seen a lot of in journalistic discussions over the last three years, which is adjective wars. Tweet mm-hmm. wars, headline wars. You didn't say this was a lie in the tweet. Mm-hmm. How dare you? Yes. And sometimes they're right. You know, it's just like sometimes West Lowry's piece. And I am right now going to be more charitable about his piece than he was certainly to critics of the way that the New York Times handled uh, Tom Cotton op-ed. And to me tonight on Twitter, he's been uh, throwing throwing gas in my direction. Oh, is, is um, he? He was uh, He wants to smoke? It, uh, he was just saying that the, like a screenshotting without linking to and saying this is an angry reaction that doesn't engage with my points, that kind of stuff.
2: I thought your piece was, um, uh, you know, in all honesty, I thought it was quite fair minded. And I think you gave him credit where you thought he deserved credit.
1: So like uh, he and other people have a very good point to make about power that uh, Jacob was alluding to before of, of like, you know, you take – uh, the police's point of view in a, a more or less one side of the story about how some thing happened an arrest or a, an altercation happened that happens all the time. And in fact, it. Bradley Balco, um, you know, 10 years ago, used to say that there isn't a liberal media bias. There's a power media bias. And I think there's something very, very uh, much to that.
2: Look, I think that's where their critique is the strongest. If there's like a school that, you know, it's all been sort of explicitly racialized lately with Ben Smith's piece and
0: Mm -hmm. um,
2: the Lowry piece. But
0: I I, I mean, Lowry Lowry racializes it as well. It's the the black persons of color in the New York Times that are or black people in New York Times and other media outlets that are helping to drive this change
2: and what's the he does a weird like passive voice construction of whiteness right which is like uh, that matt points out is a a bit jarring in a piece that's supposed to be about um nailing things down but but I, I think that there are a lot of white journalists who feel the same way as he does and you know maybe they only feel that way because of their privilege or whatever but they <laughs> they have a similar view of the uh, of the uh, importance or uh, need to prioritize capital, T truth over what I would say is not objectivity. You know, what's important in my view is that a procedural approach, uh, an incremental fairness. fairness and a sense of that the truth is, the truth is not, there's a, a guy named uh, John Robb, who's a kind of strategist. He was a special operations guy. He's very, uh, I think, astute on information technologies and Rob has a, a phrase, it calls it moral conjugation. Mm-hmm. So the the role is that, that the event occurs and then they morally conjugate the event. And I think there's a lot of people who believe that the truth is giving something the right moral conjugation and the most kind of like brazenly absurd and, um, you know, it, it doesn't make them look good in my opinion, but they seem very invested in it. Uh, example of this is the CNN chiron, right? Um, where it's like, don't say that Trump Trump claimed that yada yada. Say stinking stupid face Trump lied about ba ba ba. And that is that's the the kind of journalistic bravery is to use the right adjective to be. Um, sufficiently denunciatory in the way that you get. Now, if you reported honestly on what Trump's doing in any number of situations, it'll make him look very bad, right? If you were even-handed and sort of disciplined in your approach to showing the, the shortcomings of his various policies, the kind of preposterous incompetence that's riddled his administration, you know, his frankly grossly um, racist statements at times, like, you know, I'm not somebody who had a problem with the China flu in the kind of initial conversations. I, I didn't think that was racist. But to call it the Kung flu now is pretty gross, you know, and it, you could say that in a reasonable way. But the, the idea that what good journalism or honest journalism requires is the correct moral conjugation strikes me as not only a misunderstanding of what journalism is, but a profound misunderstanding of where journalists have power and how their power is exercised. Because the attempt to enforce the moral conjugation doesn't actually accomplish the the thing that you think it's going to accomplish. And Trump's victory is the example of that.
3: It's an interesting thing to listen to, to listen to, to, to listen to people on CNN. And I'm sure that if you spend enough time looking into the archives, you can find those chirons with the stupid, stupid head makes stupid lie <laughs> and the person on the screen, very solemnly scratching their beard and lamenting the increased polarization. <laughs> and those types of things are what polarize America, right? I mean, it's like you can, as Jake just said, which I think is a great point. It's like, you can report this stuff out and he looks like an ass. The, the kind of, you know, know, like the plumage and like putting your feathers, like just, you know, say, oh, look at me. I'm, fa- I'm fantastic. And it's it's what these press conferences have become, too, is like, OK, I'm up. I'm going to I'm going to get the the sort of Twitter video today by getting in a fight with some, you know, halfwit uh, behind the lectern. But I think one of the most pernicious things now is we don't talk about at all is like these factual things, little factual things. Um, well, what we're not allowed to do at all in this kind of universe that uh, I think Wes Lowry and, and people like him um, pine for is to question the sort of larger sentiments of a movement that's happening right now. We are not in any way talking about, we have to accept the premise that everything that is, that is that black lives matter, for instance, is debating is correct. What we actually are disagreeing on is maybe the tactics. Maybe we shouldn't defund the police. Maybe that's a little too much. Maybe we shouldn't, maybe looting is actually not the best thing. And maybe we shouldn't go in the streets. Like what if you actually have the idea that say you know situation has gotten a lot better over the past 30 years every single year this is this has gotten considerably better the situation that is being it doesn't mean we have to stop fighting these fights or you know stop trying to make sure that the police are arraigned in, blah, blah, blah. All the things that we talk about all the time. But to even have that conversation. So we talk about facts. Like Wes Lowry's piece, I was reading the, the – the, I read the lead of it, and it was like, you know, I was a reporter in Boston for the Boston Globe when I was 22 years old, and I would go into – and it would put it in the voice of somebody else, somebody he interviewed or somebody who t- said, oh, you guys don't come down here. And I'm looking, doing the math, and, you know, I'm from Boston, doing the math of how old Wes Lowry is and when that would be. The idea that the Boston Globe does not report – from Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, et cetera. And then, so then you have the second one behind, next to it says, well, you know, they only report the bad stuff. It's like, well, there are a lot of killings there. And when I was in high school, that was just like a charnel house in in Dudley Square and around Roxbury. So yeah, I mean, a good newspaper is going to go out there and you're now reframing that, that the newspaper are the bad guys because they're reporting the bad things that are happening in the neighborhood, which is pretty bad and everyone's afraid of so uh, rightfully so at the time when i when i was growing up so even that initial thing that in his thing is like i don't i don't think that's true i mean it's just presumed to be true cuz it has the right ring to it it has the right ring to it that a newspaper like the boston globe you know that sort of right wing newspaper the boston globe is systematically ignore, ignoring these communities and the, the interesting good stories there i don't believe that to be true and you know you didn't have to prove that to me because there's so much of this stuff in the sort of broader sense of this movement and the broader sense of this time right now, and the argument that we're having, which again, isn't an argument it's a monologue, which is the thing that uh, distresses me so which much. Which is what Jacob because underscores so many... in his,
0: in his fabulous piece. Yeah. Like and it's
3: why I thought it was works. so good. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, this is the thing is like uh, to, those arguments, the counter arguments or the, please explain this to me. I've said this to a few people, please explain X, Y, and Z. And, and you know, how many links am I going to get back that say, it's not my job to explain to you (laughs) as I don't know where this came from, by the way, this is considered like a knockout argument these days. It's like, I don't have to explain to you the privilege. I'm like, okay, so, if I have a question about it and I ask that question, I'm also not supposed to ask yeah, that. You can't right?
0: expect black people to explain this to you when they are surrounded by it's, racism I'm not, and I'm, it's the middle I'm of a global, a global a pandemic question. that's killing them in particular. It's just they can't. They don't have the energy to do that. Yeah. man, It's too much to ask.
2: It's a lot of white people making that
3: point. It's actually mostly white people making that point to me.
0: Yeah. I've, got, I've got friends who are making those points online. Um, they are decidedly not white. They self-identify as black. And they would get mm-hmm. reparations under the Nicole Hannah-Jones program. But you, but you would not. No, I would not yeah, qualify because you,
3: you don't self, Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off. One was, Go saying, ahead, please. No, no, it's a, fi- a final point. Is just the people and Camille knows it because you've been sending this stuff to me. Matt knows it because we read all the mail that we get. Jacob's piece speaks was written for the people who are writing to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because everyone who's writing to us is saying, "Hey, I work at X institution. It is terrifying because I want to have a conversation mm-hmm. about this. There's a conversation about a conversation or a monologue about a conversation. I cannot actually. I don't feel comfortable you know, engaging in a conversation because I have these heterodox views that 70% of America has. Mm-hmm. How has this happened? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we, in this conversation about truth and politics, it's like, if you're so obsessed and concerned with this, take a step back and watch what happens when people of good faith, not people that are, you know, working for, you know, OANN News or whatever the fuck it is, but, that w- have questions about this and say, I don't know if what you're describing is... It's not the reality that I see, and you cannot just simply dismiss that by the questioner's skin color and say, well, you, you couldn't possibly know because X, Y, and Z. But, okay, well, let's have this conversation about it. it there's so many things, these shibboleths now, that are, that are accepted truth that do not fall in the Wes Lowry thing of, like, this is truth, and we, we're going from there. And the number of emails that we've gotten, and Camille sent one to me, to I think to us today? Was it today? I uh, probably someone like a, almost every financial... day.
0: Yeah. Goldman Sachs today, yeah. I believe. Uh, we have Microsoft earlier in the week, Facebook, um the, all over the place. Read uh, the guy from the military, um the uh, other day yeah. on the Patreon, it's guy. all over the place. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: You might can I can I try to explain um sort of what I was what I wanted to get across in that
3: what you do
1: with your shirt sleeves? <laughs> okay,
0: okay, okay. Yeah, we just They're for you uh,
3: listening at home, I, it, it all of a sudden he's uh
2: Vinnie
0: Bobbery.
2: He's
3: got
0: <laughs> I no,
2: didn't,
3: yeah, shirt.
0: I didn't is that, that, that a cigarette pack rolled mm. up in your sleeve? There,
2: I used to actually do that. That's uh, I know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I could tell. It was like <laughs> give it away. It was all softbacks, though. So is there? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I preferred yeah. the softback. Yeah. This is yeah. very like vain, but I thought it looked cooler, yeah. to bop it on the side. Hand, yeah. and one you know what i mean rather it come out quicker you look like a bird, yeah. if you have to like yeah. go and dig in it like that's a square does that yeah, yeah. and that's also
0: yeah. why you were smoking newports which uh, is I, cultural, <laughs> cultural <laughs> appropriation know, by the I, way
2: listen I, I you better believe i was culturally appropriating know. <laughs> Do you think they were selling in flatbush where I, I, know. Like, I know i could walk to the bodega and get a parliament lucy or whatever. <laughs> I don't think so, man. Um, do you have a Galois, Lacey? Um, uh, I, I do miss smoking. You know, it's bad. You shouldn't smoke. But the thing about smoking is that it's cool. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? the
3: problem. Uh, and it, t- it tastes delicious, too, if you're... If you're yeah, but, uh, So... Yeah. <laughs> all right. <cool. laughs> so
2: the, this, the, the piece that I wrote uh, called The New Truth for Tavern Magazine was an attempt to explain, I think perhaps to the sorts of people who are writing into you guys or to what I would say is a kind of an observer of the American scene who feels somewhat bewildered and, and beleaguered and perhaps at this point frightened, not only by the events of the past month, by but by what they observe as a repetitive process, whereby propositions that seem extreme in a, ever increasingly rapid cycle go from being fringe, extreme propositions to being normative claims. And Mm -hmm. as that happens, um, as these, uh, to take one example is as the claim, uh, for instance, that, um, you know that that underscored the much of the, the Title IX stuff that there was a epidemic of sexual assault on college campuses, right? And that that reflected not only a discrete set of crimes on college campuses, but that it reflected a national rape culture that was both uh, enabling and then covering up for this. As they watch these things happen, they they don't understand how it is that claims which appear to them to be held only by a minority of the population, defund the police, for instance, um, and that doesn't at all seem to represent a majority or a popular opinion, how it is that it goes from being a a kind of uh, radical uh, uh, fringe proposition among uh, an acknowledged ideological fringe to being a normative claim in the New York Times so quickly. And so the piece was an attempt to explain how and why that occurs, the kind of mechanics and technology of that process. And it's both the technology of rhetoric and it's a technology that has to do with the kind of incentive structures of social media and how that, uh, how that relates to the, to the mainstream media. But the, the, like, I didn't have a great desire to write a piece challenging the claims of the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. That wasn't something I had a burning desire to do. I can assure you, I, my fundamental orientation in the world is not political, honestly. It's like, it, it's not fundamentally where I'm coming from. And I expect that often when I talk about politics, I don't know what I'm talking about, you know, (laughs) But, but, I, I was, I wanted to explain that to people a, because I was fascinated by myself. How is this happening? How does this keep happening? How is it that these things which appear to be opinions held only by a small minority of people, or, or clearly not by a majority of people, how is it that they keep getting inflated into these kind of superstructures of belief that we're all supposed to uh, 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 gesture towards or genuflect in front of as if they were normative and merely to question them is beyond the pill? How does that keep happening? And so I was trying to explain the sort of the, the mechanics of that, the kind of technology of that process. And what it involves to some extent is this maneuver whereby something like Black Lives Matter becomes this, you know, it's like a noun and a verb and a moral (laughs) claim and an empirical assertion. And it's all of these things at the same time. And you
0: describe that as rhetorically invincible. And it makes it
2: rhetorically invincible because anytime you try to challenge one aspect of it, it's it's like the cube is it rotates, and so you thought you were attacking this side, or you thought you were questioning or criticizing this side, and all of a sudden you're presented with the other side. And the side that you're presented with, or the underlying thing, is an assertion, a moral assertion that no black lives matter. Of course, black lives matter. What kind of hideous person is going to question that black lives matter? That's a disgusting thing, right? So, like, underlying it, sexual assault is horrible. Of course, sexual assault is horrible. We should do whatever we can to support the victims of sexual assault, and, and to extend to them a kind of sympathy that goes beyond perhaps what previous iterations of American culture that were were more misogynistic, were more sexist than our own enlightened times. That we should we should seek to do that. Of course, we should seek to do that. But it's the the constant turning between the empirical claim, the moral claim, that means that whenever you attempt to approach one, you're presented with the other. And the, the that's the rhetorical invincibility, but the structural invincibility, which sort of mirrors that on a larger scale, is that you have uh, Nassim Taleb as a good phrase. He talks about the dictatorship of the intolerant minority. And what you have is you have these small groups of sort of ideological cliques and these ideological cliques because the the larger institutions have become so hollowed out, um, you know, frankly, by uh, what I think was was like, a a long period that you might, you know, in a crude shorthand refer to as, as neoliberalism. And I'm sure we would disagree on this stuff, but, you know, these institutions have been hollowed out that they allow for this sort of thing to occur, they set themselves up to be taken hostage by these minorities because uh minority
0: opinions because they are we know what you really mean.
2: Yes, yes. Racist. Clean. Uh well I would have to like do I mean BIPOC, do I mean black <laughs> uh persons of color? You know, it's it's not clear actually it's not BIPOC, what it's what
0: Tupac. Means. Take it easy. Come on.
2: It could mean any number of things. But anyway, yeah. that's uh, So (laughs) when Michael when Michael says like what how do you question like what what do we mean by black lives? The point is that you don't know what I mean. That's the point. But yeah, this wasn't something I was like uh, thrilled at the idea. I'm I'm going to go write this piece and and do this. But I did it because I was fascinated by it, and also because I saw all these people who I recognized couldn't figure out what was going on. And I I know that they felt this way because I intuited it beforehand and also because I got a zillion emails after the fact who were looking for a kind of uh, structural explanation of that sort that wasn't just like culture war rhetoric about, hey, these are neo-Marxist Frankfurt School people or whatever, but that was a sort of a look at how this works as a process, as a, a series of actions.
3: I'm sure your friends don't want to hear you like referencing the Horkheimer. But um, if if uh, if I ask you a question about this, though, is what I guess the question that that I'm confused by because you can make the same kind of claim about you know phrases like you know pro-choice and pro-life. I mean, everybody yeah. loves choice and everybody loves life. It's not you know pro-abortion, anti-abortion. Those things were were um, you know changed up on us very deliberately by both sides. What is it about now and in this particular moment? And I guess, you know, some people have posited that it's that it's COVID is this moment is is helping it along. Donald Trump, of course. But, you know, things there is a there is a certain type of person that doesn't want to admit that anything's gotten better. And I've literally had conversations with people that went to very, very good schools who say it is the same as, you know, when James Meredith was trying to go to Ole Miss. I mean, it's baffling to me, but people seem to believe this or or or, or, or want to believe this because, because it helps their cause in a lot of ways. But why is it now that when I open up Amazon today or another website, I can't remember what else, I, 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 Walmart, all of them, you know, what we're doing uh, to help black lives today, it's gone so much that every corporation – is saying this is a minority opinion? What you're saying, like the the actual Black Lives Matter leadership, there is such a thing. One of the co-founders, self uh, refers herself as the as the co-founder, you know, could be found in Venezuela with Nicolas Maduro holding his hand up in the air and saying, "I've never seen a pers- per, you know participatory democracy like this one." So yeah, kind of fringe views. I mean, even in the country she was visiting, it was a fringe view. But so why is it now that? The corporations and your friends who are never political are on Instagram. This moment has just been different, hasn't
0: it? Isn't there some some dimension of this where you have the elite media organs of this country, of which the New York Times is one, perhaps the most important one, which is why we devote so much attention to discussing it, because it's important. Um, it, it influences the coverage that happens virtually every place else and can help to dictate what other papers are covering, certainly what all the cable news outlets are covering um, from day to day. They are all in on this narrative. You flip through the newspaper, who's done it on many days, um, it's hard to miss a story about these issues of race, and that's been the case for for some time now. Uh, the uniform agreement amongst the various media outlets has created the perception of universal buy-in and the amplification of concern on social media platforms has further perpetuated the perception that there's uniform agreement about this and intense outrage. And you pair that with the unusual circumstance with COVID, the actual mass demonstrations that we've seen in the streets, and the corporate response is the appropriate one for a conservative institution that is essentially apolitical. You quickly parrot this completely uncontroversial statement: "Black Lives Matter." It's obviously true that Black Lives Matter. They ought to, and all of the other things that go along with it—the the the liturgy that comes along with it now, with white fragility and um, stamped from the beginning. It's uncritically accepted as well. And Amazon is pushing it and Audible and various other places you might not expect are linking to it as well. Um, I I do wonder, however, I still continue to wonder how many people are reading this because I I just don't know that most people actually encountering these ideas. You don't have to be terribly sophisticated to to spot a circular argument. If white fragility is appropriately defined as, or if I'm accurately capturing the definition and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong... A white person is reluctant to accept a description of their privilege in society and their innate racist impulses, the likelihood that they are discriminating against black people in various ways and don't even understand it. And to the extent that they disagree, this is proof of their guilt. That, in effect, is white fragility. Correct. And if we were more sophisticated, I could read the quote from you from the book. But honestly, it's not much better than that. And that is a circular tautological argument. It's ridiculous. Like, this is, this is fifth grade philosophy. Or maybe you take philosophy in ninth grade. I don't know. But if you took it in fifth grade, that's the shit they would teach you. Like, no adult human should believe that.
3: No, I mean, I come back to this a lot, probably too much, but it is another version of false consciousness. It is another version of white fragility is, is you know, I've been, I've been reading the book, trying to slog through it because it's so tedious and boring and repetitive, but it's every time you question something, you say like, well, hey, maybe I wasn't being what you thought I was being in this situation. Um, the more you object, mm-hmm. the more you're accused of white fragility. Mm. And that seems to be, it's, 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 you cannot get out of it. It's this sort of grease pig argument. The
0: message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing.
2: That's the appropriate analogy or the, the appropriate citation.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it actually probably is more appropriate than false consciousness, but it is, that is a part of it too, is that, is that you, it's not that you're a bad person. It's not that, you know, communist economics, you disagree with it, but you've just been spoon fed by the capitalist press, all these things that are untrue. And that's essentially the white fragility has an element of that in it too, is that if we just correct the way you're thinking on this and it's, and, and somebody pointed out to me today is the, the, the sinister nature of the word unlearn mm. rather than learning something. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I, you know, we should expand your learning. You should learn uh, about this thing that you haven't know. It's no, you have to unlearn right. these previous thought patterns that are, that are now, now thought crimes. But it, to your point, Camille, is that, I noticed today in, the in, I think it was USA Today, it's always the same thing. It's always the same list of, list of books. White Fragility, Kendi's book, and a couple of other um, variations in there, ta Coates' book. And that is, could you imagine that on any other issue, that it was so kind of unipolar when it came to politics? It was like everyone is, is singing from the same hymn book. And there's nobody you can't you can't even throw Thomas Chatterton Williams book in there just to be like, ah, let's let's pretend we're balanced and say Thomas has a view on this and is sensitive to these issues, but it's slightly different than these ones. Nowhere to be found. Like I I sent you, Camille, a picture of my Kindle Mm -hmm. that was like on the homepage of my Kindle pushing me. Like I mean, have you guys not seen what I was reading? Amazon, it's like you're sending me Kendi's book, The White Fragility book, and I was like, finally, I was like, you know what? Fuck it, I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna read White Fragility, and I'm trying to read it. But um, I would love to also see the book scan numbers. So if anybody out there, um, I-, I used to have access to this, and publishing is very expensive um, because b- bestsellers now are not what they were. You can have twelve thousand copies and be a bestseller. It used to be much. Yeah, higher those than books that. are so selling. I see that that book. Yeah. They are selling. That's we did, right. And I'm wondering we how We did much. have a,
1: a, a letter from a listener, um, which I don't think that we read, uh, but like talked about how he liked you know, on his Instagram to like put, oh, here's what I'm reading. And mm-hmm. like, it's just normal. But in this crazy month that we've had in American political discourse, he blanked, blinked on sharing Thomas Chatterton Williams's book. He's like, I'm going to get trouble with my like coworkers, and he works in the knowledge industry in some in some level, and like, mm. and he was thinking out loud about how just messed up it is. It's messed up that he would even like like hesitate at all, because like, what kind of coward are you doing this? It's messed up that he would feel the pressure. It's messed up that they would think that. Like the whole thing is messed up, and we're kind of there right now, and it, and it's crazy. One thing that I think about with the white fragility thing. And uh, and maybe I'm I'm the meathead in this group, um, uh, even more than Moynihan. um, But like (laughs) if someone is making an argument of like, uh, you know, it's if you are not centering your whiteness and the culpability and stuff, I'm I'm seriously just going to tune out because I don't think I know that I have privilege. We've talked about this and I know that I'm white or at least I know that that's the color of my skin as Camille has taught me to, to talk to my own kids. Uh, it's about, not even the
0: color of your skin. Amazing. What?
1: Yeah, it's pink. It's red for all the drinking. It's very red. Um, right uh, now. Thank you. Um, yeah. But like, it's like whiteness. I never ever think about myself in terms of whiteness. And so, if you are like trying to change my behavior by uh, by appealing to my sense of centering whiteness, you're you're just not. You're not talking to me. And that's a thing. That's interesting. You're talking to the people at the Park Slope Co-op. They're worried about that in a way that I am not worried about that because I'm a meathead or maybe I'm a racist or whatever. you. Are-
3: well, they'd say that you are a horrible person for not centering that. But the problem actually – I mean one of the many problems with centering it is it becomes an all-consuming answer <clears> to everything. <throat> so if you get pulled over by the police and the cop feels like, you know, you know what? I, I don't feel like fucking with you today and just lets you off. That then sort of de facto becomes – uh you know a, a a kind of amplification of your white and you can you can never stop talking about it, it. what
2: starts off Moynihan, what you're describing as false consciousness which i think is apt becomes racial consciousness and the end result is what's supposed to be a good racial consciousness so you you suffer from false consciousness now and you're supposed to your state of enlightenment is when you achieve a racial consciousness whereby you understand your whiteness to be a a uh, permanent taint that you have to endeavor indefinitely, perennially against, and of course, what you end up with um, is just uh, racial consciousness. Now, I, I'm from this um, strange school of you know, this like brief uh, period in America where I, I, I thought, and I still think, and I know on a moral intuition level that I reject racial essentialism, period, Amen. in total. Amen. Forever. I don't care what anybody says. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't want to be anyone's ally who I'm not, like, going <laughs> – if you, if we're not going to war together and mm. you don't want to be friends, I'm not being your fucking ally. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I, I, you're a human being. You're a friend. I, to me, when I think of an ally – I think of somebody who espouses some bullshit slogan, right? Which, like, the whole thing of it too is that, like, you just you place yourself in a trap because you work so hard to be an ally, and then, like, and then the next turn is to say to denounce you for for not like doing enough for the struggle and and for only, because the whole <laughs> thing is bullshit anyway. You know, an ally is somebody who buys the white fragility book like they're supposed to. A friend is somebody who when you have two drinks too many and you, you know, you act stupid in a bar, like they'll get beat up with you or like, they'll <laughs> carry you home off the subway. Cause you're an idiot. I mean, a friend and a friend is, and, and to, to be less flippant about it. And a friend is somebody with whom you engage as an equal, as another human being who you respect, like, yeah. you know, who you, whether or not you, you come from a, a, a religious position, who you treat as if they have a soul, by which I mean like a sovereign sense of self, which is sacred unto itself, and which doesn't need to be validated politically. Of, of course, you want somebody to behave a certain way if they uphold certain, like totally uh, horrible Nazi political. Well, you're not going to be my friend if you're a Nazi. But you know, it's yeah. it's ah oh, man, I, I um I, I just. Allies the so problem.
3: It's a hard line I think that's there. actually fair, 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 because how many times have you seen, and I'm sure that this probably would provoke you from writing some of that piece too, is the description of how how to be a good ally It's a sentence that's probably been said forty eight thousand times in the past ten minutes in America how to be a good ally was – i mean if you look at the allies when we most say you say ally, we most think of maybe the Second World War and you know the Casablanca conference and you know. Yalta and the rest of it. And the thing about those allies, they all disagreed on everything, but they had the same common cause, right? Right. (laughs) Stalin and Roosevelt were, you know, a little different on things, particularly Churchill too, you know, but this, the the idea was a common cause. And if that was what it meant, we have a common cause to stamp out bad cops. Great. I'm with you to, to like reform some of that. And, And by the way, it's incredibly funny all of the time to hear on NPR people talking about the power of a union to prevent people from getting fired and bloated budgets because of that union. I'm like, wait, what? You can read about
1: that in the New Yorker just today.
3: Yeah, I know. I was like, wait, you guys, you guys had a revelation. That's great. We're now allies, but I guess we're not allies.
2: Despite my beef with public sector unions in general, which I hold in concert with my belief in the absolute critical importance of private sector sectoral bargaining power for workers, and I don't think those are traditionally, right, in the American labor movement, those were not incompatible. Fiorella LaGuardia was anti-public sector union, right? Um,
1: So is FDR.
2: Yes. But despite that, I reject totally the singling out of the police union. I think the police union is terrible in a million ways, and I would like Mm to. I I, I say the police unions if there's only one, but I think many... The police unions are t- tend to be, as a number of public sector unions, tend to be corrupting. Uh, they, they have all sorts of bad things about them. But, you know, to single out the police union and to single out police as, like, the agents of the state and uh, to, to demonize them, I'm not going to do that. And it doesn't mean that I don't think there are problems with policing. It doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there's clear, I thought Roland Fryer's piece in the journal the other day did a a great job sort of laying out, like, here's what we know about this. We don't know everything, but here's what we know. There there is evidence of systematic racial bias in some police interactions, not in shootings. We still don't understand all of this, how much is racism, how much is driven by other factors, whatever. I I thought it did a good job. But I'm not just going to, and when I see that happening, what it, shows to me clearly is how much of this is intra-elite class war. And when, when you talk about why is this happening now, the reason why it's happening now is because we, the institutions of the functioning liberal meritocracy and of the, the, the kind of private sector engines of the economy in this country Um, have been, two things have happened. They've been hollowed out and they've been displaced. So in cities in particular, right, like you you can still find sort of vital hubs of uh, entrepreneurial and uh, manufacturing activity in parts of America. It's not that it doesn't exist anywhere, though there's far less of it, but in cities in particular, it's been displaced or hollowed out. You know, New York's a bizarre economy. We live off of Wall Street. And we live off, uh, you know, these very sort of cultural elite type jobs. And much of what's going on now, the ideological radicalism, is a form of intra-elite competition that's driven by the weakness of these institutions on the one hand, things getting legitimately worse in in ways that people appreciate. The fact that it's not abject doesn't mean, you know, that, that like relative losses of status Uh, can be more incendiary and more sort of politically volatile than actual economic abjection, which tends to reduce people to a state where all they're really concerned about is how they're going to get by day to day. Right. We don't have that for most of the people uh, I think who are involved in driving the sort of ideological radicalism in this country. These are not people who are standing in bread lines. Um, So uh, why now? Like, why is it happening now? It's the weakness of these institutions, the extent to which they have disabled their own defenses through a kind of pernicious pernicious misunderstanding of their own ideals or their own values to some extent. You know, the Washington Post wants to publish op-eds, why it's okay to hate men, um, it's not shocking to me that a vision of liberalism that's compatible with that kind of sort of lunatic demonization and an idle demonization, where it's a sort of game, where it's a, these rhetorical yeah. games that get played, when you combine that sort of that that discursive move with the material hollowing out. You know, it's like, I'm not a vulgar Marxist, you know, I don't think it's just material analysis, but the material analysis is necessary.
3: Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense to me now when there's, when I see so many people on the left and it's the kind of Chapo types uh, on, and you know, the the World Socialist website who was doing a lot of actually really good stuff about the 1619 project Mm -hmm. and, you know, actually interviewing historians like Gordon Wood and, I get much more now um, why they get frustrated by the class analysis being totally subsumed by a racial one. So, for instance, Camille sent a great uh, – I think you sent it today of um, – I've seen two in the past 24 hours of uh, young white women, all three have been blonde, yelling at cops um, who are black, right? Uh-huh. And the greatest thing about the one that you sent in, in which the one, – one cop who's black engages – they at the end and he starts quoting scripture and that was like oh my god this is what i've been seeing is working class black cops against like oberlin college students telling them they're being black in the wrong way because they read a book by by a black guy uh you know ibrahim x Kendi or whoever and it Ibram. is like this is so crazy to me to be watching this that like the initial reaction is to laugh and say there's the black guy being lectured by the white girl. But the like the class dynamics of that are really funny because everyone is talking about these horrible police who do this, you know, and again, I don't have to do the throat clearing every time that, you know, I've said enough in this show of the things about the cops that that drive me a bit crazy. And I've had some bad interactions um, myself, which I've detailed on the show, which I suspect if I were Camille would probably have been you know, a totally different story, probably been the cover of the, the New York Times. But um, the, the, the difficulties, I know all that stuff, right? But at the same time, let's not forget that, and this is a completely banal point, but it's one that gets lost. It's a boring banal point. But you know, it is an incredibly stressful, incredibly difficult job for working class people. And that is something that shouldn't be forgotten when the people on the front lines that I see in Bedsty are not only people in Bedsty that have been as the people in Bed who are activists, say that it's you know gentrification, people are indigenous to the neighborhood. But so many of the people that I see marching down Washington, when I saw it, they're it just like, I'm like, I could pick out where everyone went to college with like a half a blink. I was like, oh, I know where you went. Oh, I know where you went. And then I just see all these cops just standing there, like, this is a tough job, and. You know, the union exists to get me a decent salary because I don't get paid really well. And it's actually kind of dangerous. And every time I go to work, I get in a situation where some crazy person and I saw like a couple of crazy, like homeless people today that were like frightening me in a couple of levels. And they're in that situation and they pull that gun out and they're like, I might go to prison. Whatever happens next, I could, there's a possibility that I'm going to go to prison. It's not to defend anybody for anything, but it's not an easy job. And it's not a job that the people that these people grew up around and the ones I'm interacting with and the people in elite media have ever met. They've never seen them. I mean, I, I go to the fucking um, LinkedIn page of every stupid journalist who says <laughs> some fucking obnoxious <laughs> thing. I'm like, oh, whoa, shockingly, you went to Bennington. And then I see the high school that they went to, which is like chote. I'm like, uh, Okay. And you're, and then, and then you get to do the, 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 kind of, you know, cleansing when you talk about your own privilege, but it's like, you have like, it's, you know, I'm going to end just like Jake ended by going, can, yeah. I don't <laughs> can know. I, can That's I turn the
0: conversation a little bit? I want to, I want to yeah, yeah, yeah. pull back to uh, Matt's piece for a moment. Um, first, Matt, I just, just tweet <laughs> at West Lowry and um, I invited him on the podcast to have a conversation Good. with you. Um, but Matt, I wanted to ask you about this um, this sort of moral clarity and this determination to put all sorts of new things in this, def- this re- definite realm of moral certainty. And there's a sense in which when Wes is writing about this, it feels like, you know, this is an innovation of some sort, and this in- is an innovation that's necessary for particular reasons and you unpack it in the piece but I think it might be useful for you to do some of that here it also strikes me that this is not new at all i mean this is this is Correct. a kind of fundamentalism <laughs> and and as such when we talk about all of the the untruth that is circulating today both in in print and in other contexts It's not surprising that you have that when you have a pervasive sort of fundamentalism, even if it's different than the fundamentalism that was dominant, you know, 100, 200 years ago, uh, which is the reason I asked earlier the question about whether or not, you know, there's there's a greater degree of untrue things. But I think you refine that already. So, Matt, I'm sorry, I asked a very loaded question
1: of you. I'll, I'll, I'll look uh, tackle it this way. Uh, in like 1932, there were two newspapers in Santa Barbara, California, insignificant town, tourist town, um, 90,000 inhabitants perennially. And one was a Democratic paper. One was a Republican paper. Um, there was the news and there was the press. And uh, a guy named Thomas Stork uh, owned one of them and – um, the uh, I think it was the Democrat and then like the Republican guy was starting to go out of business and it's the depression, whatever. And so he bought the other one. He owned both the news and the press. One was the the Democratic paper. One was the Republican paper. The depression was on. And like he didn't consolidate those newspapers until 1938. Why? Because that's how newspapers were in this country um, all the way up until beginning around – the 30s and the 40s, but specifically, uh, kind of post-war is when the acceleration towards uh, industry consolidation really happened. So pre-war, you would have uh, papers that had more like uh, England uh, and more like New York, which is an anomaly in newspapering in the country. Which almost like coronavirus, you know, the the New Yorkification of the way that we think about uh, journalism. Um, Distorts the way that actually journalism is done. Everyone tries to be the New York Times without understanding that the New York Times is a product of an unusually competitive newspaper market. It was. It is the international kind of liberal institution paper in a city that already has a bunch of tabloids. It has a business paper. It has a bunch of other things besides. Anyways, so um, the world before, you would have your Democratic paper. You would have your, your Republican paper. You would have your religious paper, or, You know, your Catholic paper, your Protestant. You would have a lot of different papers. That began the change, um, and there was a consolidation that happened uh post-war and very interestingly and Tom Rosensteel uh, a journalism thinker with whom I've disagreed over the years and who had some interesting um, uh, critiques of the West Lowry's piece um, um, pointed out that post-war there was a sense in within the kind of journalism naval gazing industry That we had become too tabloid. There was a sort of a revulsion against William Randolph Hearst, for lack of a better word. Tabloid newspapers chasing sensationalist crime, being too playing footsie with dictators. I think, uh, Hearst uh, even made uh, uh, Moynihan. Hearst made Hitler a columnist at some point, right? Like, uh, like.
3: Uh, I don't think a columnist. Yeah, there was a there was a thing in the in the twenties, but yeah, I don't know if it was a regular uh, column. But
1: there was there was <laughs> there was something close to that. If it wasn't Hitler, it was somebody else. But anyways, there was a sense of like, hey, look. Marx had a column in a New York newspaper, uh, and, and I mean, the communist newspaper in, in New York is was is central to the championing of Jackie Robinson. I mean, it's it's we live in a complicated country, and and thank God for that. Um, and so, the post-war there's the sense of these these dovetailing things um, that that people don't like to acknowledge within journalism worked hand in hand, which is on one hand there's a brutal consolidation the LA times company would just buy up their competitors and shut them down one after another until, I mean, LA had a super like LA confidential. Think about the movie. It's plenty of like, like shitty scummy journalists. All, there's a ton of great tabloid, uh, scummy newspapers in, in LA in the 1950s, the LA times systematically bought them all down shut them all down, consolidated, became the fattest newspaper basically in the history of, you know, christendom it was an incredibly huge thing um but as this was happening the way that um and that's a business corporate thing the way that journalism talks to it itself also was changing there's a, a crucial meeting in 1947 the uh, hutchins center the robert hutchins commission 1947 everyone got together and said you know what we need to stop being so sensationalist instead of like Covering crime in a very sensational way. We should talk about like the process and and like uh, and the underlying conditions and all these kind of things. It was basically an anti-tabloid type of thing. Well, lo and behold, these things go together. I mean, the history of objectivity in newspapers. Yes, as Tom Rosenstiel mentioned in his thing, it's part of the kind of progressive fealty towards science and an attempt to try to not. Um, not get to some pure ideal, but to acknowledge that every human has fallen and, and what do you do then? Um, but mostly it was a way to um, appeal to readers who wouldn't be turned off when you closed down the Democratic paper and merged it with the Republican paper and you made it one paper. How can you retain all those readers and get those sweet monopoly profits as newspapers outside of the city of New York and one or two other cities were able to print between 1960 and basically 2010 or 2000. That was like the, the, it was the Austria-Hungarian empire. It was a 40 or 50 year thing in which Hungarians like, oh, this is awesome. But that wasn't how things were supposed to be or meant to be in the long term. So when that flips, what comes after and what comes after is that we're rediscovering The Britishization, the early Americanization, the specialization of newspapering. And much of that is fine. But I've always said, and and as someone who's advocated for point of view journalism, I love it. I've, I've been participating in it. I've been talking crap about objectivity since I was 18 fucking years old, right? But like you have to know the difference. Objectivity doesn't mean that or, you know, recognizing that we live in a subjective world doesn't mean that that means you have to stop being fair. That doesn't mean that you have to stop giving up these sort of tools that come in this objective universe or this objective ideal universe and. Um, and that is the, the classic mistake. And so what I fear that Wes Lowry is making a mistake and Margaret Sullivan, it's not just him, it's Nicole Howell and It's a bunch of people right now. Jay Rosen, who's cheering this on. Jeff Jarvis, who's cheering this on. These guys who have been working in the journalism theorizing industry for a long time. That they are um, imagining that we get to retain our factness as we more embrace the subjectivity. And as Moynihan knows, as someone who's lived in you know crappy places like england over the years like okay if we're trading american journalism don't, don't for that. british journalism i hope we understand what we're getting in the bargain yes it's going to be funnier it is certainly going to be funnier there might be more page three girls although probably not um those are gone They're gone so, but like yeah. also the quality of journalism like just like is this true is this not true it is no contest or it has traditionally been no contest it is much less true there than it is now and so my worry is as that people are saying like oh okay we're going we're going to embrace and own our own subjectivity so that we can call you know the the trump coalition a bunch of poopy heads or whatever or call more people racist than they are that they are are willfully Abandoning, And by their actions and by the way they react to events, it seems to me that they are exhibiting their lack of concern for when things get sloppy and factless out there. And I think that is the immediate future. And to distill it into one sentence, if you say to yourself, objectivity is impossible. Well, you're right. But is moral clarity possible among journalists? What is what is the morality of like? I think that all people of all races should have equal opportunity. Okay, I think most of us agree about that. Mm -hmm. How do you get that done? Is that is there a morally clear uh, answer to that question? I would argue there is not. And I would further argue that those of us who've been making some arguments that are only recently fashionable among people who work at newspapers or people who are members of the Democratic Party Having to do specifically with police reform, if we had been arguing for the last 40 fucking years that everybody who doesn't agree with us right now about this one issue is an immoral son of a bitch, Mm. we would not have been persuading anybody about anything. They'd be on their heels. They'd be feeling defensive. You don't get shit done that way. And also, you don't describe the world as it exists as the motivations of the people who go to work or think about things every day exist. And I think that's also important if you're talking about journalism and trying to depict the world in which people are trying to travel in. The
3: end. Camille, what were you laughing at? Uh, yeah, that,
1: uh, I have to ask because I was going <laughs> to add something, but you were, that laugh was way too hard. It was, that was like an uproarious
3: laugh. It was a
0: tweet in response to my invitation to to west that's what i was thinking
3: (laughs) is there something was it from him no
0: no he's not said a word okay and you know i I hope he will come uh it is frequently the case that we extend invitations to folks um and if they're outside of our universe oftentimes they won't come if they are too high on the mountaintop and they're being criticized uh, then they won't come, which I think is unfortunate. I think there's something about having a, a robust exchange of ideas um, that I just find absolutely invaluable. And interestingly, and this may be a good, a good point at which to turn, although there's plenty of stuff that we could talk about because I could talk to you guys all day. Um, I, I, we were having a brief conversation about our tribe, whatever this thing is, and there is a, a universe of people um who both frequent this podcast, which is to say that they they show up perhaps more than one time. Um, that's generally a pretty good indication that they're part of our tribe. And our tribe is not like weirdo libertarians, because we're not even uniformly that. I mean, Michael Moynihan is a neocon. Like he's a bloodthirsty neocon. Um, and, <laughs> is that right? Um but unaware of that. But but the friends <laughs> but the friends that we bring on are not Weirdo libertarians. There's there's something else. And I think it's it has something to do with our conviction that there ought to be rational discourse and that this notion of, of moral absolutes is not the sort of thing that ought to be abused. Um and that dissent, even about important things, is not merely tolerable. It's it's valuable and useful and it's something that ought to be cherished. Um, and supported in that healthy media institutions actually go about trying to make certain that they are maintaining that at an appropriate level. Um, and instead, the only sort of diversity that folks seem interested in at this point is diversity of appearance, university of, of convictions, diversity of, of physical appearance. Uh, we can't have too many of those people here. We need a few more of those other people. Um, and I think there's something obviously despicable about that in ways that should be palpably obvious, but these days uh, it no longer seems to be the case. Um, I, I just want to add one thing quickly. Yeah. This is not a, a long
3: soliloquy. It's, it is uh, something I just realized. I am going to pull together three threads that I just realized right oh now. God. Matt mentions LA confidential, um, which was based on confidential magazine. Right. And uh, you know, tabloid, tabloid wars and uh, you also mentioned the daily worker which was the communist party newspaper the daily newspaper in uh, new york city um and a few days ago we talked about gone with the wind Mm -hmm. and the hbo uh removing that what do all those three things have in common well the daily workers film reviewer in 1939 was a man named howard rushmore and howard rushmore wrote a review of gone with the Wind. And submitted it to the paper. And the paper said, this is not sufficiently attacking Gone with the Wind. Oh. <laughs> Gone with the Wind is a movie that is that is not something that we should say. And he said, OK, let me pull this back. I'm going to rewrite it. Because this is how it went, the editorial process of The Daily Worker. And he said, I want to praise his technical achievement. And I'll just say, you know, the, the, the slavery stuff is bad. So they fired him. And he was fired from, from uh, as the film reviewer for, for The Daily Worker. A few years later, Howard Rushmore became the editor of Confidential Magazine and was quite a quite a, you know, very good at this and uh, um, hated, widely hated and became more and more anti-communist as 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 he went on and then became quite friendly with Joe McCarthy. And McCarthy's people actually said he's too crazy. We actually have to back him up. We, we, don't, we actually it's too much for us. And he was a fire breathing, like the kind of, you know, dopey version of Whitaker Chambers. And this all ends, by the way. With the great tabloid moment on the cover of the New York Daily News when Howard Rushmore is in a cab um, with his lover, young, much younger than him, on the Upper West Side and has an incredible row and turns uh, to her and shoots her in the face what? and kills her and then shoots himself. Hmm. And the cover of the Daily News the next day is a picture of the two bodies slumped in the cab on the Upper West Side. And that started with a man who was fired. Because he said that *Gone with the Wind* was not a bad film, and they said, "No, it's it's a slave pro slave. I film.
1: mean, so. great story to be to be clear, a great story. But what was the fucking headline? That's what Jacob Siegel wants to know.
3: The Daily News headline wasn't um, great. Uh, Confidential's ex-boss slays wife, comma self, Oof. and another one I think is Interior Rushmore. Ex-Red kills wife and self in in, in taxi cab quarrel. So I mean, this is one of the, the most okay. under. Uh, underappreciated stories and well and, i mean uh, the post
1: the post is gonna deliver i mean the snooze i mean what do you want you want yeah Michael,
3: exactly a, a ouija photo you know? uh i don't know if it was a ouija photo i do have a book of ouija's photos i um, think i
2: that one from him
3: it would have maybe not because i think this was maybe 19 early 60s or something but uh but an incredibly strange man uh that, and that and, and, and you know what actually one other final point is that is that w- w- when we say where did this come from, and I asked this question before, is that, you know, these kind of victories, it's just black power, and the black power movement was considered, you know, something that, mm-hmm. that the black power people lost, and, the you know, Bayard Reston won, and SNCC won, and the Panthers lost, and, you know, Huey Newton was murdered in a squalled little drug deal in o- Oakland in the early 1990s, mm-hmm. and totally forgotten about. But if you look at it, it actually kept going, and it, you know, it was a long march of the institutions. I sent you something, uh, today, uh, Camille, about a professor, former professor of mine, the great Julius Lester, who's uh, ah. a- often forgotten about, a great, you know, had a weird Marxist period. He be- he he became Jewish. Uh, Tablet wrote something about about his uh, conversion to Judaism because uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. found one uh, relative in Alabama that's I think his last name was Altschul, was like you know great something and he 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 had been accused of anti Semitism, but he criticized James Baldwin, who he was very very close friends with and called him Jimmy. Uh, when Baldwin came to U- UMass Amherst, where where he taught, to do a class and was addressing in 1984 addressing Jesse Jackson's Hymietown comments, and so uh, uh, Lester later wrote about this in 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 his in a book because uh, it was like Songbird or something, and um, the Afro Am department which was what it was called at the time uh, got together and and he got fired from the Afro Am department. At University of Massachusetts, he ended up teaching in the in the Judaic Studies department because he had criticized um, Baldwin, and this is 1990, I think. And he and and the they the faculty got together and they issued a report, which was later the chancellor of UMass said we don't support this report, but they referred to Julius Lester, the great Julius Lester, as an anti Negro Negro. (laughs) <laughs> and they kicked him off the staff. And and this stuff has been happening for a very long time, but it's just sort of happening all over the place now. And that's why I sent you the Lester stuff today. I got to say
2: two things. Speaking of that anti-Negro-Negro remark makes me think that that's insane. So Adolf Reed, yes. right? Who's a... He's a CUNY, right? Uh, no, he's not a CUNY anymore. I'm not sure what Reed is now. But he's a, a real like Marxist... Yeah. Uh, Professor historian who's been there, you know, long before the DSA became um, Turkish, yeah. <laughs> an elite social club. Uh, Reed was involved in Marxist left wing politics. Um, I don't know the full details on this, but my understanding is that Reed was supposed to give a talk in Brooklyn a few weeks ago, and his talk was essentially shut down. Um, And I believe it was shut down by a DSA chapter. If I'm wrong about that, I apologize. But I believe that that happened. I believe that Reed, who is, I probably should mention black, so-called black, he uh, was supposed to give this talk. The talk was shut down because he's supposed to be, you know, a kind of vulgar class reductionist who's insufficiently, I mean, Reed is, you know, totally hostile to sectarianism, as you know, a normal human being should be, but in his case, also because it conflicts with his idea Mm -hmm. of um, class solidarity and of class conflict, which it does, Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. and which is also, in my opinion, a very good reason (laughs) to object to it. But, you know, you talk about, like, who's going to benefit from all of this ferment that's going on right now? What are the outcomes of this going to be? Because we're in this bizarre suspended period. We're stuck in our houses for a long time. Now there are these incredible spectacles in the streets. Um, uh, what's the outcome of this going to be? Uh, we see, like the the fact that the economy has just been completely short circuited and sort of half went on a, off a cliff, has kind of been lost in all of this, right? But when all of this is said and done, and when the New York Times has a new editor and Bon Appetit magazine has a new editor, and I'm not saying nothing will good good will come from this. Certain good things already have come from it, right? 50A in New York is a a good police reform. There are, but all in all, who's going to benefit from Mm this? Like if you believe in, you know, I said before, I don't want to be anybody's ally. I don't want to be anybody's ally. You know, I I have human beings are my friends or they're my acquaintances or they're my enemies. Those are my or (laughs) family would be the fourth category, I guess. But I do Do believe both. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. the, in a superposition <laughs> both but, I, uh, but I do have attachment to like you know kind of older romantic ideas of solidarity that I find very appealing mm-hmm. and, and, and real human solidarity like I don't think that everybody involved in the Black Lives Matter protests is captured by the excesses of the elite ideology in fact I think the larger the protest, might, this might be different this time because they're so overwhelmingly sort of co-opted at this point. But I know from covering these protests in 2015, the vast majority of people, particularly you know Black people from working middle-class neighborhoods in New York, are not out there for some elite intersectional agenda. They're out there saying... We want to be treated fairly by the cops. We want to be treated with dignity. And and we want to be recognized in a way, fully recognized. Like the desire for real, full recognition, which gets complicated, but is part of this and is understandable. All of those things, let's call them all of like the reasonable, sympathetic, maybe just, truly just impulses that go into this. Are getting channeled into something that's going to produce outcomes, in my opinion, that are not going to redound to their benefit at all. That are going to work to the detriment of the vast majority of these people. If you think that what's going on right now is going to make the life of the average black person in America better, I got news for you. You know, yeah. we'll see what happens. I don't see that being the outcome. The New York Times getting a new editor, uh, a a movement among people who. Not only represent a minority position, but seem not to care at all that the vast majority of Americans and the majority of black Americans don't have any interest in stuff like police abolition. You know, I don't see this working out well for people. I'm sorry to be ranty right now, but it's I I, I just like the the degree to which that just doesn't matter in these conversations. The degree to which the actual impact of these upheavals right now are kind of ignored or subsumed into some moral calculus. It it, it appalls me. And I, I do think about like mass unemployment, mm. the economy's going mm-hmm. off. Black Americans disproportionately impacted by this.
3: Well you by the way, you're right. Adolf Reads, I'm um, just confirming this for you, there's a Google document produced by uh, local DSA chapters that did tried to cancel him, and um, they linked to the article that he wrote in Common Dreams, the left-wing website, um, and uh, about COVID. And I scrolled through, and I said, oh, half of this was written by Camille Foster. The other <laughs> half was written by a Marxist uh, historian, because this sentence is what, what irks them. It cannot be stressed enough that race is not a natural category. It is a fiction, an entirely made-up idea with no grounding outside of abstract and arbitrary taxonomies. Hmm. Elaborate just so stories of human difference, and at the end of this uh, long paragraph he says a claim that black people are especially vulnerable as black people to COVID nineteen or any contagion mm-hmm. is as preposterous as a claim that unicorns are especially especially vulnerable. Holy Spirit, and this was the piece yeah, we've talked about uh, and, that and before. Of course, here it goes on with him to be it's 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 going to be class, but but yeah,
0: yeah. Let's get him on. Right. <laughs> let's it's get a him great on. a great piece, and and Should very much very on. much like Barbara Fields in that way that their their critique of race. Um, it runs parallel to their uh, other political interests, which happen to diverge pretty sharply from mine. Um, I, I, we've been going for a little while. I did want to see if I could push us down one more dark alley. Uh, I know for the past couple of recordings, we've had uh, some of the stuff that's happening in the streets. Uh, you mentioned a second ago, Jacob. The The fact that there's all kinds of stuff happening that's unlikely to make anyone much safer uh, or improve the quality of their lives. I will mention that one of the New York State police uh, reforms that's been adopted is a new piece of legislation that criminalizes calling the police um, for erroneous reasons, specifically because it's like a black person sitting in front of you or standing in front of you. Now, proving this is a challenge. I don't know how you go about doing it it sounds like a very difficult law to enforce, uh, which might mean that is an opportunity for all sorts of terribleness to take place. Um, Or it's just another law that sits on the books until one or two people get abused with it. I'm not sure. In either case, in addition to some legislative changes, we know there have been a great many cancellations. Over the course of the last couple of days, we saw two uh, fairly prominent actresses abandon Their roles in animated shows because they were voicing young biracial girls. And this is important. Biracial? This is important. Young, specifically biracial girls, which apparently, if you are biracial, a white person can't play you, but a black person can. (laughs) This is the one, the Has one to. drop rule. Has just it, this is the only fair one way to rule. adjudicate these things. It's That's absolutely right. stupid, and i I use the I use the 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 word biracial. Um, I think biracial is a is a stupid word. It doesn't make any sense because race is stupid, and the notion that you are. Uh, sort of purely white or purely black in some sort of fundamental sense, and then you become half halfsies uh, afterwards is is wrong. And I know some biracial people will hear that and perhaps get offended, but I don't care. Uh, but in addition to that, statues, syrup, um, stained glass windows of Jesus, uh, well, white Jesus in particular, all bad things that need to go away. Um, but there's been a lot of statue stuff recently. And Matt, I know this is something that you've perhaps had a bit of a a bee in your bonnet about initially, it was Confederate statues that were getting pulled down. Now it's expanded to a great many other kinds of things, and the the thought that I've had
3: Norwegian abolitionists—it's it's all
0: sorts of stuff. Uh, essentially, if it's old, we want it to come down. And and I thought most of this is about some sort of tangential connection to slavery. Who where where is it the place that has like plantation in their name and no one knew it
1: Providence Providence Providence, Providence Rhode Island Providence yeah, yeah. which is like the greatest like religious freedom No, you know, Roger, Roger Williams is an absolute yeah, hero yeah, yeah.
0: The Providence yeah. is Providence well known for having had plantations filled with slaves
1: No Yeah not because not worried. all plantations no, no, had slaves did.
3: No here just, we are. they just had a yeah. the,
1: the word yeah. uh, plantation Uh my favorite <laughs> of these ones is um is it's hard it's hard to pick from. Uh but
0: like <laughs> favorite in, so in
1: Whittier, California, in the in the in the shitty town. Richard and I, Nixon's I, town. I say that with affection. Hey, you're Melinda Whittier, yes. We, he went to Whittier College, right? Uh Whittier, California, yep. uh where uh my the brother works at a hospital. Um uh Francis Greenleaf Whittier. Jesus, you goddamn northeastern abolitionists, you have the worst names. <laughs> Double barreled. <laughs> But like, note the word abolitionist is in there. They his uh, thing was defaced with like uh, you know BLM and and other kind of stuff. It's like no, like the town that he that's named after him, and which the you know this this memorial is in. You might like read up on it, who he is, before you like spray paint stuff. Uh, It's (laughs) it's amazing, and it happened in in Wisconsin too. There was another. (laughs) There was yeah, another... Wisconsin
3: was the Norwegian abolitionist and the gay <laughs> democratic, like, local state senator or something who was punched in the face for taking a picture of it. It's uh, like, man, you guys are missing yeah, on every possible assaulted,
1: frontier. Uh, in San Francisco and Golden Gate Park, um, which, I mean, fair enough, don't go to Golden Gate Park. Uh, Let's <laughs> uh, uh, talk about personal history there. But, like, uh, it wasn't just Ulysses Grant, which is a very interesting kind of, like, how do you get there? Um Uh, a a rival some people who are not smart it's like oh he was a slave owner Um, and all. just go Google that before Mm -hmm. you ever say that or repeat that because that's a very interesting story that um, Google that and also Frederick Douglass's eulogy for Ulysses uh, uh, Grant Uh, that should we all know Frederick Douglass was an Uncle
0: Tom so he
1: doesn't count just that's true Um, uh, but also like they defaced Cervantes Cervantes, the uh, Don Quixote author, who was, if not quite a slave, was an indentured servant for like five years. So, yeah, I mean, I think the basic uh, thing obtains and and it's not hard for the vast majority of everyone to understand. It's like this. It's a it's a weird elite kind of uh, parlor debate about like, oh, well, you know, maybe the statue puller downers have gone too far. Maybe they haven't like no, dude, mobs. Don't get control statues or anything else. I guess you decide what's this Also, that's but bad. But they're
2: not even. They're not. It's not like they're making a determination about Cervantes, right? I mean, these are. This is the exercising of collective passions that have no rational basis. That are not instrumental attempts to achieve one policy or the other. They're not like grant has to go because he violates x principle that we have you know i get i got accused after this piece one of the criticisms i got after i wrote this recent piece was that like i placed too much faith in rationalism you know but like i'm not a rationalist (laughs) at all actually it's it's a funny thing because i place very little faith in rationalism and the thing i was trying to defend in that piece was not like rationalism as an epistemological method or something. I was trying to defend what Camille was talking about before, which is the possibility of argument and conversation and critique. That's what I'm invested in. You know, I don't even care if it's reasonable. You know, I'm <laughs> unreasonable as
0: that's, long as we can. That's talk, more fun than I can win. I'm good. With that's what I want.
2: <laughs> as long, yeah, exactly. But I, I, I look at this stuff and I, it, it's it's not ultimately controllable in the sense you don't know where it's going to go. It doesn't know where it's going to go. It's funny. You know, the first time I appeared on this program with you guys, it's because I was worried about the alt-right and I was saying that the (laughs) alt-right is a real
0: I tried to tell you. In America. I tried to tell you. Listen,
2: (laughs) and that's, and I will tell you largely, I think you were much more right than I saw it at the time though i'm not a i'm not a determinist i think things can go <laughs> different ways but 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 like one part of why i thought that at the mm-hmm. time as somebody who never thought nazis were gonna take over america like I, I was never a hysteric about it but one reason why i took it seriously is i take collective passions seriously hmm. you know what sure. i mean like yeah. i take Irrational impulsions, seriously, (laughs) drivers of human behavior, particularly in the, in the aggregate, you know, when people lose their sense of themselves and these people destroying these statues are not doing it because they have some specific enunciated vision that they think this is going to accomplish. They're just saying like, you know, like the past is bad. We need to destroy the past and then we'll get to the good stuff we, you yeah. know
0: you know well, I, I don't think uh, no i'm sorry jake you no uh, you know, if it's a minority
3: if it's a minority opinion too by the way i mean it's this idea of, you know only the elites or x number of people have it i mean you can look back in the past 200 years of mass delusions like this that became problematic for countries, for continents, for civilizations, for races that were not believed by the majority of people. And so, I mean, I don't think something like that's going to happen now, but I do, I do have to myself back away from this idea. Well, it's only so many. It's like, but yeah, how much power do these people mm-hmm. have? Does anyone feel like standing, you know, athwart the statue burners or, 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 you know, people putting ropes around them and pulling them off and, and saying, this is madness. Cause I think that, you know, I had the moment I was talking to a, a, a cop who's a listener to the show, the NYPD, uh, uh, a brilliant guy. I mean, his, 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 his mails he sends are, are, are really smart and interesting. And um, I actually said to him when I was in I was in um, Bedside the other day, and I saw that just a different feeling in Bedside of like kind of like lawlessness. Mm. And I, I won't, I'm not being like a shrinking. I mean, I don't care. I just noticed this different kind of this kind of frisson you get when you get into bedside. It's like, oh God. And everyone's on the street and like, it's just, you know, you get that in the summer, but when the cops went by, it, fe- it felt like they didn't want to be there and that the people in the streets were making sure that they were, were known that they weren't going to be there. And, and as I said to Camille the other day, it just does not seem like people who are worried that they go out of their house and they're going to get shot by the mm. cops. These are people who go out of the house and they're antagonizing the cops everywhere. And it's like, wait, oh my God, am I into this kind of broader point of like minority... Am I like going back and thinking that broken, broken windows was a thing and I should be supporting this because I noticed that like just when they stop, when they stop enforcing the, the the, told to not drink of the fireworks, except that you've 8,000 billion calls to 311 every night, is that this is a small number of people and a small number of people that are. Are, are are having these kind of confrontations with the police. But the police are backing away because of it. And, you know, I mean, you see that, and cops will tell you that, that, you know, I don't know, the Ferguson effect stuff is not my kind of bailiwick, and I know Camille knows a lot about this stuff, but I see this moment here in which the cops just are not being aggressive mm-hmm. at all. And I was on the phone with Camille yesterday?
0: I think that's right. In my own yeah, neighborhood,
3: yeah. And, and I was walking through the projects, and a cop, as they always do, driving through... And just people swarmed out and were just like screaming at them and shouting and like, you know, like celebrating. And I'm like, these cops are in retreat now and it's fully uh, in retreat, heard. you know. So uh, small numbers of people can, can can achieve incredible results in a short period of time.
2: I've heard from more than one person in the NYPD. Uh, I know a number and I, I have heard from two over the last three weeks that there is a deliberate and, you know, the extent to which it's organized is debatable, but there's a deliberate Mm -hmm. pullback.
3: And in a way you can't blame them.
0: One other thing I'd say about these, uh, these structures that are being torn down, being renamed, essentially everything being found to be defective, polluted by the taint of slavery, which obviously is uniquely responsible for the awfulness of America and is something that can be credited for all of its success. Uh, two, two observations. One is I've had the privilege of traveling around the world and visiting a lot of places, seeing a lot of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, uh, many of which were built by people. Uh, when I say people, I mean slaves, like the Machu Picchu's, the pyramids, like lots of these buildings. And somehow we find a way to like put them in historical context and still revere the architectural accomplishment and marvel at the duration of time that they've been able to withstand all of the forces of nature that that ought to have eroded them and broken them down. But there's still something there. We even try to preserve them. I remember going to Machu Picchu and feeling somewhat haunted by all of the corpses that I knew were there. Below the surface of the ground, that these buildings had been built on top of, people who were broken and killed being forced to build these buildings by the Inca, who were an aggressive people who dominated a number of smaller, less powerful people and effectively enslaved them, but who today in Peru are revered and loved, even by people who, in many cases, I imagine. Most of their ancestors were perhaps uh, brutalized by the Inca. And it's just interesting how history works and the, the puritanical sensibilities that the, the, the wokesters have, or at least that's ascendant during the wokepocalypse, because it just seems, it seems to presume something about the unique awfulness of the United States um, that just is completely ahistorical it just is like there isn't a country that doesn't have a a similar taint. And there's one other thing that I think is worth mentioning, especially with respect to like notions of racial essentialism. There's a dominant sensibility that, you know, systematic racism is a thing that is uniquely, particularly, perhaps even exclusively harmful to black people and black people in the South in particular, contemporary black people. Um, People who say that, I imagine, have not visited the South. There is a, a fundamental sort of backwardness about that region of the country in certain places, and it's hard for me to believe that the progress of the South, broadly speaking, today is not stunted, stultified by the egregious crime of slavery and the subsequent energies that were expended brutalizing Black people and systematically discriminating against them. Everyone in the South is a victim of slavery. Everyone, Black, white, and otherwise. All of them. The culture is perhaps tainted by it in some insidious way that is somehow not known. The the ones who are perhaps the worst the most victimized by it are probably like white people who still harbor all kinds of bizarre racial resentment. They've been taught it and it's been passed down generation to generation and it is explicit and it holds them back and makes them unable to operate in polite society. Like they're victims of systematic racism to the extent it's a thing. And quite frankly, the entirety of the United States' history, I imagine. If it had never had slavery, the entire country would be more prosperous. And it's certainly true that the South would be more prosperous. I think of all of the brilliant Africans who were imported to this country by force and pressed into service and their progeny, which must have included a couple of Einsteins that were effectively never allowed to achieve anything. They were robbed of opportunity. Like they lost. And yes, their progeny perhaps led a a less wonderful life because of it, but it's hard to say, but it's certainly true that all of us lost. And that sensibility is part of why I feel like, you know, the Juneteenths, I wish that was something that we could celebrate together universally because both overcoming slavery and recognizing the awfulness of slavery, like the injury is all of ours. It is collective. It belongs to the country, and in the same respect, the victory belongs to all of us as well. And I don't think it's a mistake to call it a victory. And I, I'll talk about the obscenity of reparations another day. But I've uh, said enough.
3: Camille, I would recommend to people, and what you said, I think I recommended to you too the other day, is um, James Oakes, who is a professor of history at CUNY, um, was on the uh, a podcast called Manifold. Mm. I think it's, uh, somebody who's just canceled Stephen. Uh, uh yes. I'm, I'm Asia, forgetting his
0: name. Uh, from Mich- yeah. Yeah. Stephen. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Jack. It was yeah. the genesis so of he, the Slate Star to- Codex, um, uh, cancellation, not cancellation, but the, the end of that blog. So sorry, but go ahead, please.
3: Yeah, no, we'll, and, and I think we'll probably Patreon talk about yeah. that too, but James Oaks uh, talks on that podcast for a, a good hour and a half, about these very things um and has a, has a very good um has a very good discussion about uh the actual economic damage that uh, slavery uh did to the south and the competition of the north which you know the the, the which was much more economically robust mm-hmm. Uh, be- because it, it didn't have slavery, that yeah. this is sort of the post-bellum stuff. But it's, wor- it's worth listening to. You might disagree with some of it, yeah. but, um, but uh, really, really interesting. And it's specifically on the 1619 pro- yeah, yeah. Projects. But the guy's name is James Oakes, and uh, a brilliant guy, and I learned a lot from him. And,
0: and, so. and not just slavery, like Jim Crow. All, all of it, the redlining. Oh, all yeah, of yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it sure. injured all of us collectively. And that's not to say that it didn't have particular effects, and it's not to suggest that some of the disparities that persist today are attributable to those harms, those past harms. But the, the injury is collective. The notion that all of these benefits have accrued to white people because of the disadvantages and awfulness visited upon black people, it, for anyone who has like a basic understanding of economics, the, the claim is somewhat absurd. Like it doesn't make, it doesn't actually make sense. Um, Maybe there was less competition for a job or something like that. But that, that sort of systematic oppression isn't benefiting the country. That actually takes something from you. It costs something. Um, and I think even having harbored that sort of awfulness, it haunts you in a way. Even the upheaval that we're dealing with now, the, the perhaps mass panic, it's fair to call it, like, all of it is related to that. We're still paying the cost of this thing.
1: I think it's a widespread misnomer that, and you see this a lot um, uh, in in various critiques that, like, we got rich because of slavery. It's the whole uh, King Cotton myth. Yeah, it's silly. And yes, I th- I think the way that you portray this, Camille, is the right way. If just think about it in this way, and don't want to belabor the point, but like what do international economists or people who look at global development what is like the the precondition to get out of poverty okay it might be trade it might be this it might be this policy but really it's about do you let your girls go to school mm. right cuz if you don't let your girls go to school that means that they're working from the age of 8 that means you're not educating half or more than half of your workforce like it's just a fundamental you are, are you are locking up all of this human potential to so imagine that the locking the literal locking up of human potential is going to somehow benefit mm. people on net or benefit even a class of people who are adjacent to them. I think um, it actually doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and it's worth pointing that out. Sometimes.
0: There were a, a great many more more slaves in South America, more slaves in Brazil. Like and and for a lot well, if you start to start, I have to start renaming things because of
3: <laughs> and and like renaming things for conquistadors, I mean, you got to rename <laughs> everything in Mexico. <laughs> but by the way, I'm just saying that those um, places, the whole country, don't rename. have
0: the prosperity that the United States does today. Like that argument doesn't make uh, sense. Uh, one more uh, recommendation
3: for listeners is um, Matt. You were talking about the King Cotton stuff. Uh, the, the, I bought an ebook just kind of blindly. Uh, Philip Magnus. I don't know if you yeah, yeah. Uh, know him. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, the American Institute for Economic uh, Research, I guess. Yep. Uh, the 1619 Project: A Critique um, is kind of a smart economic uh, look in, in certain parts and other other, but he criticizes the whole thing. And uh, but uh, it's five bucks on Kindle, and I found it uh, pretty pretty rewarding. Um, and one final thing about about changing names: I know that there's been, and I want to get into this, but I know there's been um, a series of uh, 30 Rock episodes. We were trying to get Tracy Morgan on the show because we've had some interactions <laughs> I with them. Out to them. Uh, they were taken. they were taken (laughs) off yeah we're gonna try they They were taken off because of uh blackface (laughs) and so i looked and i i opened up amazon prime last night to watch a movie and i saw that 30 rock was in the main thing i was like should i look at those shows i guess they've taken them off um what did i end up watching Uh the party uh and if anyone knows the party no yeah birdie num num
1: This is is like uh, Peter Sellers from 1965.
3: It is is a Peter Sellers movie. Um, Blake Edwards directed it. And it is him in blackface the whole time as an Indian guy, uh, a lovable, like complete halfwit Indian guy who keeps messing everything up and mistakenly gets invited to a party. It's the weirdest movie. And the whole thing takes place at him inside the party, like messing everything up. And it's an hour and a half. It's like, in, in it's very funny. And I was it's just like, funny. at what point, like, does this, does this go to, because it's gonna this is going to have to go too. if those episodes are going, this is an hour and a half. Or is there a statute where it's like a statute of limitations where it's like, okay, if it's before, you know, 2000, we allow it. This is, um, this is the, it in the rain. I watched with Levy the other night. There's oh no. a moment in it where they're walking through the studio and there's people performing. And in the back, there's people doing blackface. And there's performers like, okay, this is t- two nights. They've just intruded upon these two things. Well, intruded upon because the party is explicitly uh, somebody in, I guess, brown face is the phrase that you use now. But I don't know. We have to take a I, I lot think, of things off of, off of Netflix.
1: I think what's going to happen is that Diversity Partners International, mm. um, in, addition, in <laughs> addition to its consulting Ooh. business, which is very lucrative. So lucrative. lucrative. So lucrative. Yes. We are, um, we are, taking, these, we are it,
0: taking these white folk money. We are taking those white folk money. That's what we do. <laughs> why, why wouldn't we? they're giving it? We away. should. We're, we're <laughs> helping them. We
1: are helping them. You're not taking it. At yeah. Diversity Partners <laughs>
0: International. We believe in taking your money.
1: The back half of the business is to save and then make copies of and then sell bootleg copies of everything that is on the verge of or already has been canceled. So you yeah. start with Song of the South it's called Song of the South Industries. Um, yeah. just like Gone with the Wind, the blackface episodes SOS of this, the, <laughs> uh, the jazz singer, all of the jazz singer versions. Doesn't matter which ones. Like get them, uh, Eddie. Mur- I think they'll allow Eddie Murphy's skit to stay on, but like, mm. there's going to be a lot that are going to be. He came um, back. Taken. He
3: came back to SNL uh, not long ago and did a buckwheat sketch. It was great. Listen. Yeah. The
1: idea that the most
2: offensive thing Tracy Morgan has ever done is black. <laughs> <laughs> like, <Or> ba- <laughs> don't go listen to his past Howard Stern appearances. Let oh my god! It. If you well, think- he got
3: he got he got temporarily canceled, and then and then um, uh, Thirty Rock did an episode about it where he said he, oh, th- he did remember. stand up in like Tennessee or something. All he said, right. "I if my kid was gay, mm-hmm. what would I?" You know. Yeah, but go if yeah, you
2: he- actually as as with almost all of these things, yeah. Right, it was deep contextualized and if you go back and you listen to it look it's like <laughs> how shall i phrase this he says bad things if you take them literally mm-hmm. but if you read the intent like it's actually in its garrulous burlesque like the humane mm-hmm. it is yeah it's humane yeah the thing i hope i'm remembering this correctly otherwise it's going to come off yeah, that's okay I think it's
1: true yeah. do it
2: the intent is humane, and the, it's not just the intent. the meaning is humane if you act like a person and you allow yourself to be a person and to understand what he's saying and to, to listen to it, but of course, the incentives to not be a person yeah. are enormous. yeah, right mm-hmm.
0: now yeah <laughs> well, too well said we should we should punch out of here. I will tell you that once they come yeah. for tropic thunder, um, I think that the country is too far gone.
3: There's a funny bit of Jamie Foxx talking about that, how he he uh, talked to Robert Downey Jr. about it. And Jamie Foxx, by the way, who does a very good Robert Downey Jr. present. I think it was on- Rogan. Joe Ro- yeah, it was on Rogan, yeah. And it's very funny. And like these, I, 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 I should put it this way, Jamie Foxx is not offended by Robert Downey Jr. As, uh, as he uh, shouldn't and, be. Uh, and if uh, we're
1: yeah. being honest right right now, if we the three of us look at Camille, listeners can't see it, but like, Got a little bit of Robert Downey Jr. blackface going oh, on. Oh, wow. <laughs> what? Holy yeah. cow. You're, oh, you're saying I wow, look just right? that? Oh, yeah. I guess so. Yeah.
0: I guess what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. I see, I'm looking at a picture. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Huh.
3: It's also to be noted that the most famous, I would say, line that that character utters in the movie is is also like a different type of offensive.
1: Don't go full you, retard. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So I mean, wow, it's just, you, you're from <laughs> yeah. Boston and you can't even say it anymore. Holy cow! I only do it in Boston
3: accent because then people understand <laughs> that I'm just mocking my own people, my own Bostonians. By the anyway. way, that
1: that changed from uh, like the etymology will uh, has changed from the beginning of this podcast. This podcast started in 2016. We dropped a lot of retard bombs back then. Yeah, Did and we? like, yep, yep. Oh, and goodness. in the in the it, and I remember we got some feedback from it. Like, ah, I'm not sure you guys can keep doing that. And at some point point we stopped and that's just how things i march. think
3: i would have known in 2016 not to say that. i think it was maybe just nope on a boston people all Can right. I say one
1: more thing yeah, it's also see. you matt totally. yeah i didn't
2: mean to catch up I, I, for the record because i have this in my head and um i don't have that many opportunities to get something like this on the record but you know jones two weeks ago or so said something to me that's far more offensive than the fireworks thing and is what she should actually apologize for and i think she ended up deleting it and trying to explain it but she said that um we all know the difference between racial blacks and political blacks Mm -hmm. something like that yeah and then uh a woman on twitter she tweeted it a woman on twitter said what do you mean by that something like that and she effectively said like you know if you don't know you don't know something along those lines Mm -hmm. and um, she she deleted it and she said she was misinterpreted Oh, yeah so she said that there are racial blacks and there are political blacks and what she meant was that like there is a there is some sort of pure objective quality of blackness which expresses itself in a kind of cultural political formation that corresponds to skin color, but it rises above skin. I, I you know, <laughs> listen, I, I, that should have been what got her in trouble. You shouldn't be able to say that and work at the New York times and be in charge of the big project on refounding the country's history. The fireworks thing was stupid and bad. And it's good. She apologized for it, but the moral offense is the insistence on this super essential uh, racial determinism. That's the moral offense. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's gone on as long as it has, you know, I lay out in the piece why I think that the sort of professional historian response to the 1619 project was ineffective. But these are, you know, you want to talk about the truth, like we're privileging moral truth of things we know to be true over sort of um, flimsy standards of objectivity or fairness. I know it to be true that that's wrong and that mm-hmm. um, that you, you can't be involved in a good faith project about American history and uh, or about black American history. If you say something like that, and then don't even have to explain it in any kind of substantive way. I, I, I Look, I, I'm not, I, I've had a bit to drink at this point. I'm not explaining <laughs> this perfectly, but I just wanted to say, because I, I feel like that sort of got swept under the rug, you know? And yeah. to me, that's far worse than the fireworks thing. Yeah.
0: You know, we've mentioned uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones a few times. Look, she is among the most prominent journalists in the country right now and she is a decorated journalist at a prominent media publication. She has perhaps the most visible perch of any journalist in the country right now. And I think it it is appropriate to talk about people who have that sort of power, especially when you're at a place like the New York Times, which again, we said, probably the most prestigious publication in the world. And Part of that prestige is, you know, their their commitment to ethical journalism, which is a thing that you can find on the web, and it outlines their duty to their readers. And if you look at it and you read it, it's, it's inspiring. The Times treats its readers as fairly and as openly as possible in print and online. We tell our readers the complete unvarnished truth as best we can learn it. It is our policy to correct our errors, large and small. As soon as we become aware of them, when did you become aware of the fact that one of your journalists was on the internet promoting conspiracy theories? Have you acknowledged it as an institution? Staff members who plagiarize or who knowingly or recklessly provide false information for publication betray our fundamental pact with our readers. We will not tolerate such behavior. Is promulgating conspiracy theories on social media publishing? We treat our readers no less fairly in private than in public. Anyone who deals with the readers is expected to honor that principle, knowing that ultimately the readers are our employers. Civility applies whether an exchange that takes place in person, by telephone, by letter, or online. Simple courtesy suggests that we will not alienate our readers by ignoring their letters and emails, et cetera, et cetera. The word civility is in there. And a lot of her conduct online is, is base and nasty. And I will say that not ever addressing your critics directly, an unwillingness to even appear on programs with your critics, the fact that you haven't ever done it, so far as I can tell, certainly don't do it these days. That doesn't seem like respect for your readers. Not exposing your ideas to the bright light of genuine criticism, relegating the, the informed perspectives of serious historians to the, the letters to the editor section of your publication. That is a, a far cry from the tradition that you're supposed to be upholding. And I think that tradition is indispensable. And if you can't do it, somebody else will. Let me punch out on that. Taking shots. Shots! Shots! Taking some shots.
1: All right. Thank you, Jake Siegel. Thank you, Jake Siegel. Bye. Bye.
3: Bye. We we, we know of new methods of attack. The
2: Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column.